What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 533. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we have returning guest screenwriter Robert O'Mara from Dublin, Ireland. And we're going to be talking about arguably one of the best novelists of the 20th century, but he was also a film critic. He also worked for MI6, and he also happened to write a movie that, depending upon my mood, sometimes I will say is my all-time favorite movie, but it's always in the mix, no matter what, but I'm, of course, talking about author Graham Greene, but Mr. O'Mara, welcome back to Wrong Real. How's it going? Good to be back. Yeah, man, I guess the last time you and I spoke, we were discussing just the gazing into the abyss with a lot of drugs and alcohol in the context of, like, <laughs> Hunter S. Thompson and William Burroughs, and uh, that, that was a fun one. We probably should have, like, done some microdosing or at a bare, bare minimum and sipping on some whiskey as we did that episode. Yeah. I think I might have been. <laughs> you, you might have been. One of these days, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hop on a plane, I'm going to fly to Dublin, and you and Simon and I are just going to have to have like a, a whiskey drinking round table, and we'll pick a simple conversation just in case we get derailed, but I would love to film us in a cool Irish pub getting properly sloshed as we discuss a cool topic. Yeah, definitely in Toner's Bar where they, they filmed uh, Duck You Sucker. Oh, nice! Hell yeah, that would be killer. <laughs> Fuck, we can just be... we can just discuss Duck You Sucker. Yeah, Properly pissed, as they say. <laughs> yeah. Well, catch people up. I mean, the last time we spoke, I guess we were right in the middle of the initial outburst of the pandemic. How have you been looking after yourself in the uh, the months since? Yeah. Well, you know, it's been a. Uh... A strange year for everybody. Um, I'd actually started doing a, a, a master's in screenwriting uh, last uh, November, October, November. And then 
it was suddenly like shut down. The college was shut down in March and the rest of the masters took place online. And we, we, we graduated there a few weeks ago. And uh, congratulations. Yeah, it was <laughs> some. So I had some sort of accomplishment uh, it, during the year, you know. But um, yeah, it was a bit disappointing. But um, yeah, and then now, you know, we Dublin just opened up yesterday, really. I think, and um, for, just for the Christmas. But uh, a lot of the bars aren't open, uh, so it's yeah, it's a strange year. There's no. Does I normally be working in the uh, independent film sector at this point, uh, this, this time of the year? So I'd be doing a uh, sound or uh, first AD or producing, but uh, there's nothing on at the moment. Everything's just cancelled, you know, or postponed. Well, if you ever want to get in costume and come over to America and be an <laughs> adversary for Hobo with the High Kick and Hobo with the High Kick Part Two, I'm sure we can find a way to put you to work. Yeah, it sounds great. A uh, Columini kind of wannabe cosplayer who goes on a murderous <laughs> rampage or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it sounds great. Yeah, but um, yeah, so that's really it. You know, the, the, the year um, at this time last year, I produced a film which is now doing its festival round, even though it's the online festivals. But it's been getting into a few festivals. It's called uh, A Death in the Family, directed by uh, Kate Haley. Um, so yeah, I produced it and it was it was great fun. But uh, yeah, we just didn't get to screen it. We still haven't actually screened it or anything for the, anybody. So it's, it's just been online screening. You know? So yeah, so many movies are doing online screenings. Like last night, I saw a tweet about all the movies that are streaming this weekend, and I saw one of them was Thomas Vanderberg's Another Round, which Marcus Penn has been going on and on about. So I was like, oh shit! So I started looking for theaters. I started looking all over. I was like, where the hell is this thing playing? As it turns out, the only place it's technically playing is this digital online theater that's kind of hosted by Samuel Goldwyn Films. So I've now rented Another Round. I'm going to watch it this weekend. So I'm excited to see it, but I think it's coming out like officially online in a couple of weeks. But even for Thomas Frickin Vanderberg, they're, they're being subjected to this online kind of yeah. The like an online theatrical experience just call it call it what it is <laughs> you're streaming it <laughs> yeah yeah i mean what do you make of this whole uh was it was it uh, fox no who was it announced they're putting their whole Warner brothers on next year in 2021 is taking their entire movie slate and doing day and date releases where yeah. and also that that slate includes a lot of movies that are supposed to come out in 2020 they got postponed movies like dune, dune and it's yeah. going to be an interesting experiment to see because what they're Theaters obviously need new films, and studios need to survive. And I think AT&T, the corporate overlords of Warner Brothers, have finally said, look, the future, whether you, like, whether you believe in preserving the theatrical experience or not, the future is in streaming. We're going all in on streaming. That was the whole point of AT&T buying Warner Brothers in the first place, is so they would have you know, a content factory for all their various uh, services. So that'll be interesting to see because... I don't mind going to the theater due to COVID. I mean, I saw Mank a couple of weeks ago and there was only one other person that was fine. But what I do mind theaters about or what I do mind in the theatrical experience is half the audience or more on their devices, the entire yeah. movie, which for me yeah. is has ruined one of my great pleasures in life. So I will gladly stay home and watch movies in my underwear. Yeah, there's nothing worse in the dark theater and then just this glow comes from like two seats in front of you, you know, as, as someone opens up their phone. And these like, are people yeah. who have bought a ticket. Like they spend 25 <laughs> bucks to see a movie and they're yeah. sitting there cracking up at some stupid TikTok video the entire time. It's like, <laughs> all right. I mean, if, if <laughs> to each their own, but I'm, I will gladly watch Warner Brothers uh, content at home. Yeah, no, it sounds great. Yeah. Something to look forward to. I'm actually, I have, to, I have Mank on ice for tonight, you know? Nice. <laughs> Now, when it comes to screenwriting, do you have a giant feature that you're cooking up or you wanted to uh, write some shorts? What are, what are your plans as a writer in yeah. the weeks and months to come? 
Well, yeah. So I, I did get a screenplay out of the uh, the course nice. out of the, uh, the masters. So um, that I was telling you the Second World War about the Irish guys thing. So, but um, I kind of was a mistake to to write that for the college because I ended up with a script now that's to, to make it. When you're talking like fifty million or whatever, you know, you basically so, need like David Lean to rise from his grave to make it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I, I'm at the moment. I'm a bit uh, written out. So I'm just going to take the rest of the year off, Christmas and all that stuff, and then start fresh in the new year and hopefully uh, write sort of a portmanteau type uh, script for something that I can shoot in some country house that I can rent somewhere. You know, and that's what when uh, <laughs> when Moose and Bill and Tony and I started talking about hobo. Moose took like several cracks of the screenplay. He wrote like three or four different drafts, and each one was like more ambitious than the last. And it's like, you know, hordes of demons and ninjas and like secret cults. And it just, I was like, dude, this is like a, a small, low budget movie that we're going to be <laughs> shooting on the streets. There's enough money to get people here and pay for their salaries. And that's it. Like, so we got we to gotta radically scale back our, our goals. And obviously, you should never write. With the handcuffs of thinking, oh, I've only got X amount of dollars to spend. Yeah, but, I mean, they told us they told us on the course, yeah, yeah, forget about constraints, just write what you want to write, you know. And for me, that was the first time I'd really done that because I'm usually shooting what I write, so I'm all I always have an eye to the budget and to the the, the production the costs, where how many locations I can get and whatnot, you know. So there's always that in the back of your mind uh, until you you know get a decent budget together, then you can kind of be free with it. The settings and st locations, you know. I mean, also, there's always the option of just writing a book. I mean, uh, many novelists that look, when you write a book, you never have to hear the word location or budget or child actor or weather. Like you just, you just write what you want to write, and yeah. you can make it as grand or as intimate as you choose. Yeah, 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 for sure. I'm, I mean, that's that, that's the way. I, one, one of the guys who I was on the course with, he, he's actually he was a published novelist. He was doing the masters in screenwriting, and uh, he, he he came out, finished the course, and he just went back to start writing a second book. You know, nice. so, well, why not? You know. Well, speaking of books, let's switch gears to Mr. Graham Greene, who I think he wrote, he wrote well over 20 novels, wrote a lot of original screenplays, wrote a lot of film criticism, a lot of journalism, and this is a guy who would occasionally sell off his books and sometimes would be intimately involved in the adaptation of it, and sometimes he would just write an original script and then turn it into a novella, but he basically explored everything you could do with the written word and entertainment in the 20th century and left behind this enormous body of work. And as I mentioned before, he's the, the, the architect of one of my all-time favorite movies, the, the Third Man. But this is your idea. You pitched this topic, and I must admit, prior to getting prepared for this episode, I'm, I had never read a single book by Graham Greene. It's one of the things where every time I thought about reading one of his books like you know, any, well, any of his big ones like uh, Quiet American or whatever, I would end up just rewatching The Third Man. I kept on just, I always considered <laughs> myself a Graham Greene fan, but I just watched The Third yeah. Man over and over again. But I, I was totally neglecting and ignoring the rest of his work. So I finally read Brighton Rock, which was yeah. uh, a great pleasure. I know that's not considered his best, but I wanted to start with something that was considered more one of his quote unquote entertainments because yeah. I thought it would be a, a good gateway drug. But how did you first get exposed? To the great Graham Greene. Yeah, I mean, well, for the idea for this episode, I, I was actually rewatching uh, one of his uh, one of the films that we're not going to be talking about today, the, the remake of uh, The End of the Affair. Um, and uh, I, after I watched it, I was reading up on uh, an article in the Irish Times, and they said that Graham Greene was the most adapted screenplayer of the or, or writer of the twentieth century. Wow. You know? 
and, and that, that that made me think because I was thinking who else would have been like I, I mean, the only person Christie, Christie would be a huge one Stephen yeah, King would be a Stephen huge King one. Yeah. but Stephen King would be like a 21st century writer as well so you'd have that but yeah so it just fascinated me and I looked up on IMDB and there's like 80 plus credits there you know and, and like in some of his films have been made like five times you yeah. know like the, it's uh, the, the, a gun for sale or, or um this gun for hire has been made in five different versions but but no my, my exposure it's it's a funny story really um it ha- i have to thank my father for it you know my, my, my father was uh, a bit of a drunk um not a bit actually more like a raving a raving <laughs> drunk <you know? laughs> so but but you know and, and I, I was growing up and uh, he'd be out till like all hours of the night and then he'd come home and I'd be sitting here, and I'd hear like a bang as his, his car his car crashed into the uh, into the garage door. And I go out, and he'd been sometimes passed out behind the wheel. How he got home, I don't know. You know, there was no drink driving; wasn't really a thing then. You know, but anyway, I'd get him into the house, and he always would demand a film. He just he'd just say he'd like Armand Nirvana or uh, the third man or Shane or whatever it was. He was always, well, at least he had good taste, irrespective yeah. of how inebriated he was. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so so I, it would be my mission to get him in, get him sat down, and I'd stick on a film for him. And more often than not, he would pass out and fall asleep, you know. And I'd, I'd be end up sitting there watching this film, you know. And, and so I got to know a lot of them, the third man, because a lot of them were repeats, like Shane. He, many times, you know, he'd come home, and that was the one he wanted, or uh, Armand Havana. So that's where I first started watching these films, you know, and uh, kind of not really paying much attention, but it got me a grounding in old Hollywood and old uh, films of all kind, noir and stuff like that. But um, so I was always kind of familiar with um, with these films, and I and the books were always here in the house as well. So, but I'd never actually read them. I didn't start reading the books till after my father died about seventeen years ago. I kind of going through his books, and I a big, there was a big pile of Graham Greene. So um, yeah, so I started reading them. I, it, it's the kind of I, I love to read a Graham Greene book when I'm in a foreign country, sitting in a cafe in a foreign square somewhere, you know, and it, 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 he's very suited to that, you know. And I imagine uh, a lot of his books were written in a similar fashion as he was traveling around the fa- world because he's incredibly... I mean, he's a travel writer, essentially, as yeah. well, you know, because he, he really did, like, research, heavily researched his books in terms of going to the places. And that's why I love a lot of the films is they were filmed in the locations they were meant to be, you know. There's there's not too many of them which are just studio films. They're all on location in Vietnam or in in um, uh, Havana or or, uh, or Vienna. Vienna or wherever yeah. it is, you know. So that, that, that was also something I loved. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I went to... Um, I was in Palermo, in, I was in Sicily, outside Palermo for about a month, and um, I, I was reading Graham Greene daily there, and he, it was a, the the, uh, the power and the glory um, about the priest, you know. And is that considered his best? It seems like a lot of people regard that, the power and the glory as the masterpiece. Yes, yes. I mean, that, that's the one that really, I suppose, the purists would talk about. We People like me and you would think, third man or whatever you know but uh, that's but he's the one. one of those writers that definitely divided his work between significant work and entertainment and i know that frustrates some people if they have a lot of affection for the things he regarded as an entertainment but he definitely it seems like in his mind he, he was like i'm either doing yeah. this or i'm doing that and never the uh, twain shall meet and he would work on, he would work on 
two of them at the same time. So yeah. he, in the morning, in the morning he'd work on the entertainment, and then in the evening, when he was getting down to his drinking, he would work on the serious. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was a serious drinker. There's no getting around that. He 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 he, he did not mind tilting one back from time to time. I even found his um his cocktail, the Graham Greene cocktail, which he invented in '51, but apparently it's made with um. I found that I can't. I think I found this maybe on, yeah, it's on Wikipedia. Yeah, vermouth, cassis, and gin. Yeah, <laughs> sounds uh, delicious. I, yeah, I think they they, they 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 serve it in the somewhere in, in I think it's either in Saigon or Hanoi or somewhere yeah, like it's, that. it's in okay. the Metropole Hotel Hanoi, Vietnam, which is where yeah. he uh, where he cooked it up. I had planned to actually drink the Graham Green cocktails during the interview today, but I thought I'd. When we do our part two about his the best adaptations in color, <laughs> sure. you and I will pour a Graham Green cocktail and yeah, yeah. do it properly. Exactly. But yeah, so, um, you know, it's just one of those things that I love. I love reading. Like when I was in Sicily, you know, even though the book was about Mexico and uh, the Catholic, uh, uh, the, the Catholic priest and stuff like Sicily, there was, there was quite a lot of similarities. So the, the, the surroundings, are re it really fit reading the book. And I, if I'm traveling, I always take a Graham Greene book with me, among other books, you know, so, but, um, but yeah, so that's, that, that's really where uh, I kind of got into Graham Greene and um, have been, you know, a fan. And, and I, I'm, I also haven't seen all the films, you know, I haven't, haven't read all his books, I'm still, which is a good thing. I, I still have. Prior to you recommending this episode, the only ones I'd seen of all the ones we're talking about, I'd seen Ministry of Fear, I'd seen This Gun for Hire, and I'd obviously seen The Third Man more times than I can count. So it was an absolute pleasure getting to see a shitload of new movies. I mean, I, I, Fallen Idol had been on my list the fugitive for, forever fugitive had been on my list for forever yeah. and so it was a thrill this is a guy who I mean, he was adapted by like john ford and fritz lang and joseph l mankiewicz and many many times by carol reed yeah exactly and that, that's one of the exciting things like when you when you look at the, this this period like this this was his really his, this was his high period when when he was pumping out the books and, and they were getting made films between like say the 1940 and like say the late 50s that period was just uh when all these classics were made and the direct like the selection of directors that that are making his films and not just directors but like the the, the cinematographers you know the yeah. the cinematographers are, are some of the best cinematographers like that of all of us you know what i mean like when you think of, we, we don't really know we everybody knows roger deakins but nobody really people like me and you sit sits People who, like, who read the films will, will know more the DOPs, but back then it, it's hard to name any DOPs apart apart from Greg. I mean, you got like James Wong Ho, who shot James, Confidential Agent. James Wong Ho is obviously one of the all time great DPs, and I mean, did extraordinary stuff like on Sweet Smell Success. So, yeah, and, uh, and uh, Body and Soul. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of James Wong Ho. Yeah, and then Robert Krasker as well, uh, Harry Waxman. Um, you know, just all. Yeah, Brighton Rock was shot by this guy Harry Waxman, who uh, and it's gorgeous. It's yeah, fucking I, just like chocolate for the eyes. He's the same guy who done The Wicker Man and and, and your, one of your favorite films, The Vampires. You know, The Daughters of Darkness. One, <laughs> that, 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 he was also a photographer. That. I have so, a so, sentimental weakness for lesbian vampire films. I will not lie. So yeah, so like all of that combined, you know, makes these films a pleasure to watch. You know, there's, there's, there's such a great selection of uh, some of the best, the cream of the director and cinematographers and, and actors as well. You know? What's so funny is that like, you and Simon O'Neill keep recommending these episodes that involve me uh, 
actually having to to read books. And I guess between <laughs> you and Simon, you're going to keep me somewhat invested in literary fiction because with him, I read The Disenchanted by Bud Schulberg for the first time. And with you, I read Brighton Rock for the first time. Right. And, uh, you know, because I tend to just read a lot of fantasy, horror, and sci-fi, which are fine. Those are great. Yeah. But it shouldn't be the only thing in your – it's like living off in a, a diet entirely of like hot fudge sundaes. It's just, like, you know, you need a little nutrition <laughs> every now and then. But you also – both of you seem to be attracted to these writers – who have interesting military experiences. I mean, obviously, Bud Schulberg went away to fight or to be involved with making documentaries in World War II. Yeah. And here you have Graham Greene in World War II, who gets recruited by MI6 and gets stationed yeah. in Sierra Leone. So what, what do you know about his experiences working essentially as like James Bond for, for, for a little while? Yeah, well, like so, I mean, when he started, when the war started, um, I don't know. Should we talk a bit about his earlier years? Because sure, it, it yeah, by all means, this, like, this is your episode, like, so we can focus yeah, on whatever you like. Because like Graham Greene, like you know, he he was bo- when he was born, he, he was he was born like Protestant or whatever, but he, he converted to Catholicism. Um, you know, I, he, he suffers as, as a child greatly in school. He was bullied, and he he, he was he was being psychoanalyzed when, when he was like a, a kid and stuff like that. And um, it, it was really messed up, you know. So he he kind of. Uh, he had this kind of death wish. He was he was suicidal as a child. He was suicidal as a teenager, right up till his early twenties, you know. And uh, so he had this kind of like a, a danger, uh, a dangerous bone in his body, you know. Like um, as a child, you know, he was trying to take. He was taking like wormwood and drink, drinking like uh, hair tonics and all this sort of stuff to try and kill himself. Uh, over taking like a whole pa- a pack of aspirin, like a whole a whole and jar of aspirin. Wormwood is the root that's in absinthe, right? To give you the hallucinatory. Yeah. Effects, yeah. He tried all these different things like nightshade. You know, he just tried taking all these things. He took a whole lot of pills, went swimming, still survived. And then, he, then when he got to college, he started playing uh, Russian roulette, you know. And apparently, he played like Russian roulette like seven or eight times and always pulled the trigger, and it, no, nothing happened. And then, when he converted to Catholicism, suicide becomes like a, a big no no, you know, it's, it's the biggest, almost the, the biggest sin you can make, you know. And, it's, uh, it's a mortal sin, as I mean, they say it in Brighton, it's a mortal sin, it's the yeah. worst one of them all. <laughs> And so I also, it always fascinates me when I find out about Green because I, I kind of know a bit about him anyway, but then researching for this episode, you know, to just find out that, that the type of guy he was, you know, and he, he was, he, he converted to Catholicism and he spent the rest of his life racked with guilt, you know, over, over his That's adultery. That's why people sign up for Catholicism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what it's, they want. It's, so it's kind of fascinating, you know, and uh, he, 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 he really did. He, it, it really affected him for the rest of his life. And he, he was always, but anyway, the suicide was off the board once he converted, but he still had a debt wish then. And so he put himself in danger. So when the second world war started, he volunteered, he volunteered for fire duty. So, so when the air raids were happening during the blitz, it was his job to be up on the roofs of these buildings, you know, trying to put out fires and stuff, you know, and, uh, and that wasn't exciting enough for him, you know, and he, he, he was working for the ministry of information, making like writing copy for like a, uh, propaganda posters and stuff like that and uh his sister who was worked for mi6 she she recruited him you know um and uh it took a while because he, he actually wanted he, he wanted to become he wanted to join mi6 but um even though his uncle was um, one of the like a, a, an admiral in in naval intelligence in the first world war and his sister worked in mi6 he had a, a wayward brother who had like um sold information to japan you know like on, on shipping shipping uh, uh shipping the uh, information to the japanese so there was kind of this thing but eventually they accepted him in and uh 
he worked for this guy, Kim Philby, who was one of the uh, Cambridge tree, uh, the spies who were kind of uncovered in the 50s and the 60s, in, 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 who had ri basically riddled MI6, you know, and um, there was three of them, McLean, um, uh, Philby, and uh, I can't remember the other one. And then a fourth one appeared, uh, Anthony Blunt. But anyway, he, his, his boss was uh, Kim Philby, and um, they were very good friends, and uh, he, he he got trapped. So he was stationed. He was he was sent to um to Sierra Leone and um, where he'd been before. So in like in the thirties, he had travelled on a whim with his cousin to um over to uh to Liberia because he'd found a map, an, an old American military map from the First World War, which just had like a few a few place names and then this big blank spaces which just said cannibals. You know. Oh wow. So <laughs> so so. so this was like so. So he that's where he wanted to go. So he went there and he spent like about four months wandering around with, with his cousin, this this woman, and um, put himself in all kinds of danger and got sick. You know, got got some t strange tropical disease. Nearly died. They had no medication with them. You know, all they had was Epsom salts. And uh, he survived this. And he wrote uh, um, Journey Without Maps, this book, um, a travel, which is one of the most uh, popular travel books of the thirties. So he'd been, he, he knew that part of Africa. So he was, of course, of course when he was recruiting. It's kind of like MIC. the last era where there were still blank places on maps for on people ma to explore. Yeah, exactly. You know, so I, I just got him, of course, a lot of, uh, uh, this made him, this made his name because the fact that he had done this and he kind of put his money where his mouth was, you know, but, um, and, and then the, the time when he was um, in, in Liberia, he wrote a book, The Human Factor. Which is kind of based on his time there. It's a novel. It's a, it's one of the later movies that we could talk about if if we do this, the the part two, but but anyway. So yeah, we're, he didn't really like on a, one thing on, on his journey from uh, on the boat trip from uh, from England to um, to Africa. He he wrote a confidential agent on the boat on the way. You know, so um, he, he was very fast as it, as it was. But he was there. He wasn't very happy. He, he was like trying to recruit agents uh, and he couldn't find any agents. And, and it was he's basically doing the Noel Cowell role, Noel, Noel Coward role in Our Man in, in, in Our Man in Havana. Looking exactly. for vacuum cleaner salesmen that he can uh, turn into spies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because they, there they were trying to counter the the the, uh, the Vichy French who were in the, the neighboring the neighboring states, you know. So he was he was trying to trying to um, get French spies and stuff like that. But he didn't really enjoy. He didn't really have a great time, and he didn't get up to anything. Really well, I'm sure like the it. mundane reality of like cloak and dagger stuff is. I mean, obviously, if you read a lot of great fiction and watch a lot of great movies, cloak and dagger antics seem so romantic and thrilling. But I imagine a lot of it is is busy work. Like anything else, and you get bureaucracies, and you know you got paperwork and all that kind of stuff. So imagine, yeah. like, yeah, every whoever who might dream of being an international globe-trotting spy, I imagine that the day-to-day -day can sometimes be a little bit more mundane. Yeah, no, for sure. And and this is where, like, while he was there, like, he, he was, you know, the tedium of having to write up reports and all this sort of stuff in code, like, transferring them into code and all that. So, um, but he, but he loved being in Africa. He loved being back in Africa, and he loved the natives and the customs and me meeting the locals and stuff like that. He really kind of uh, immersed himself in that. And of course, like, he, he was a total womanizer, you know. Uh, he, he liked to whore. He liked to go whoring wherever he went. And uh, even though, because he was married and at the beginning of the war, he started having an affair with this woman 
which continued for like 10 years. And while he was having an affair with her, he started having an affair with another woman, wow. this American this American heiress, who was, who was also a really devout Catholic, you know. And, and so this, this affair uh, lasted for, for 10 years as well as the other one. And uh, yeah, he was just racked with guilt. He, he spent his time between these three women and going to confession, you know. So... <laughs> so so, but but he was. That's why he wanted to get out of London and get get out to Africa. So he spent his time there. But um, and it was while he was there, he he got the idea for uh, Armand Nirvana. That they came across. There was two agents they came across. There was one um, Portuguese agent who was um, had about twenty different. Uh, agents that he was sending reports back to the Abwehr, the German Abwehr and military intelligence. And they were all fake, you know, he, and he was, he was getting paid for them. And then there was another guy, a Spanish yeah, he's guy. just he, trying to justify that slush fund he has access to. Yeah. And, and they, they were going to turn the guy in to the, to the Abwehr even, you know, they, they thought, but, but they just let it go. And then they, they found another guy in Spain who was also doing that. And they actually recruited him into uh, MI6 and he, and he became a double agent working for the Germans. But he got the idea there, like, you you know, during that time. But he came back from uh, Africa to London and very abruptly and quickly, he, he quit uh, MI6. And uh, like, no, he never, he would never talk about it and um, why he did. And of course, his, his boss at the time was Kim Philby. And it's believed that he, he became aware that he was a spy. Because I did see in the biogra biography that he wrote the, um, the introduction to Philby's memoir, My Silent yeah. War. Well, yeah, so this is something that came because because the idea that he just quit MI6 is I found very odd because it's kind of like the IRA once in never out kind of thing, yeah. you know. And, and I think that was true for the rest of his life. He, he those later meet he he went to Moscow to meet Philby and interview him and stuff. And th there was he, belief that he was working for MI6 still when he went and done that, you know. But then um, Philby got promoted and he wanted to bring uh, to bring Green with him and Green quit. And it's believed that he became suspicious and he was very much uh, he, he he believed there was a famous quote from i think um, em forster um if i had to choose between betraying my friends or my country i hope i would have the guts to betray my country you know and uh, green green was very faithful to his friends gotcha. you know and, and and so he i think he just decided just get out of this and and rather than be involved with Philby, betray or, or betray Philby, to, and, and Philby, you know, lasted for quite a while. Well, longer. Plus, he had a few masterpieces percolating in his system that were just screaming to be let out. So yeah, he Ex had a, he had bigger things on the horizon than being a spy. Yeah, exactly. So so yeah, so that that's really um, you know his his wartime story, and and that that brought him up then to um, so after after that he started then you know going to places um um and write, writing uh, you know more travel books go going to mexico going to vietnam um I, I was just trying to think actually um just before the begin just before the beginning of the war um he he he, he was uh, he was he he, he, he his first two novels, he didn't get published. He couldn't get them published. So it was his third novel he got published, but it was, it was like, like, a, sick... like a late 20s when he started trying to crank out some books. And when did he make the switch? Yeah, I mean, it, his first novel was in 1925 and he just couldn't get it published. The second novel was in 26. And uh, he, I think his first book that he got published was A Man Within. So that was like the 1929. And But that was 
kind of a medium success. You know, they, they, it, it, it had like six reprints, maybe 5,000 copies were sold. It wasn't a huge, it, it wasn't until like in 1932 when he'd done Stambul Train that it really started, like took off. What bit. I love though is that he was still supplementing his income though with the film criticism and book criticism. I feel like a lot of times people feel like once you start making stuff, then you need to stop commenting on it because you're, you can, it's hard to play both sides. He clearly did not agree, and he continued yeah. to write great commentary. But one of my favorite reviews that I came across was when he was talking about um, the film Wee, Wee Willy Winky for, uh, <laughs> and this is for the publication Night and Day, yeah. where he said that nine-year-old star Shirley Temple displayed a dubious co- – is it coquetry? Is that how you pronounce that? Coquetry, yeah. Yeah, which appealed to middle-aged men and clergymen. And 20th Century Fox was so pissed off, they sued him. And apparently he lived in Mexico until the trial was over. Yeah, so the, the, that's that's the point. I was I was going to that Mexico thing. So so yeah, he he basically accused male Shirley Temple fans of being pedophiles. You know. Yeah. Uh, and, and it might not be true for many of them. Maybe it's not yeah. even true for the majority of them. But I guarantee it was true for some of them. Yes, for sure. I mean, those those Shirley Temple movies they, they they were they were playing up on her sexuality, even though she was only like a ten year old or whatever. You know, the short skirts and stuff. So yeah, it was pretty kind of dodgy. But anyway, yeah, he got embroiled, and, and the, the, he was writing for this magazine night and day, and they sued the they sued him the magazine. The magazine went out of business, and uh, he, he he scuppered off to Mexico to uh, when the trial was on because he, he was he was afraid he was going to get arrested. You well, know? if I ever get sued for an episode of Wrong Reel for one of my YouTube videos, I'll come live in Ireland for for a, for a winter <laughs> and just drink away my woes and keep my head keep my head down. Yeah, so so like around that time, like nineteen thirty seven or so, he headed to Mexico. Uh, it was basically to do a bit of research on uh, the uh, kind of uh, the Mexicans' governments that were cracking down on Catholicism and uh, you know um, making forcing priests to marry and uh, desecrating all altars and killing priests as well if they didn't uh, if they didn't comply or stop if they didn't stop preaching. So he he went over there and. Sorry, gathering evidence for the fugitive. But but yeah, but yeah, he put himself on a mule and he traveled around on his own to all these areas. And again, he got totally sick. He got dysentery. You know, um, he he got like he had so many ticks in his body, like that he could. When he got back, finally got back to Mexico City, he had to have someone like pour hot wax on him to, to get these ticks out of his back and his arse and stuff. Oh, and, and he was totally so mal- malnourished. And he, and he basically he put himself through what the the whiskey priest goes through in the uh, in the, the parent glory, which became the fugitive, you know. But um, but he, so when he when he came back from Mexico, he had two books. He wrote he wrote another. Um, uh, Travelogue, travelogue condemning the whole anti-Catholicism thing, and he wrote the uh, the Parent Glory, which uh, was turned into the Fugitive. You know, so so yeah, so that that's what I kind of we kind of skipped that whole Mexican thing. So that and that was right before the, the beginning of the, the well, second. Well, this World. is when these guys who whose life is so vast and so complex and so productive. It's like you. It's almost impossible to discuss them without leapfrogging across entire decades at a time. So there's no way, in a matter of like a couple hours, to really consolidate his entire career. So the best we're yeah. going to try to do is a survey of yeah. some of, his, some of the highlights from the earlier part of his career. But quick question: I was, I was looking and I couldn't find any real evidence on this. I know he had mixed feelings to put it kindly about alfred hitchcock from his time as a critic which is one of the reasons why he never allowed hitchcock to adapt any of his books even though hitchcock pursued some of his books like our man in havana do you have any additional insights as to what that behind the scenes kind of beef might have been 
Yeah, no, I, um, I just don't think he, he kind of taught much of of of, of uh, Hitchcock as a filmmaker. Now he would have been familiar with the not the not the stuff that we know Hitchcock for really. You know those old black and white films. But he probably like, would have like, seen Thirty Nine Steps as a critic. He probably would have seen Lady Vanishes yeah. as a critic. I mean, those are those are those are strong movies. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, but I, I no, and I just like I I just read the second volume of his uh, biography. Which is huge, like he, it's a three-part autobiography bi- biography, um, by a guy called Norman Sherry, and I, I read the second volume, which is nineteen thirty-nine to nineteen fifty-five. You know, and there's nothing. There wasn't anything about Hitchcock. There was, however, about Noel Coward. So, so while he was a critic in the, in the late thirties, he and and right throughout World War or the, the, up to the first like t- uh, three three years of the war. He, he lambasted Noel Coward. Every everything he'd done, whether it was a, a stage production, a film, a song, he would criticize him. And um, like uh, Noel Coward, like really couldn't understand. And Noel Coward started writing back to him, like publicly. Um, he he he, uh, he wrote a song called "The Ballad of Graham Greene," <laughs> uh, which totally lambasted him. You know, and, and then um, he had. He, he wrote this play. And also, for people who don't know, Noel Coward in the 30s and early 40s was like the Beatles when it came to his pop icon stature. He had fingers in everything, you know, yeah. like he was, he, he was a singer. He was a he was a, a playwright. He was he was an actor. He was in films. He was he was just all over the place, you know, uh, and, he, and he took um, real umbrage with the with, with the or Green took umbrage with him and and uh, always wrote really nasty and he'd, he'd send him like this the ballad of graham green and then graham dream would just go right back in the, as soon as the next play or the next film and, and then um he, he sent him like a, a poem which is about you know i, I have it here i, I, I mean it, it's like a really long poem goes down, down the next page it's it, it, it's it's probably about um i'd say it's about 20 verses of what? Why do you hate me? Kind of thing, you know. <laughs> uh, 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 what, what have I ever done to you? What, 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 did I ignore you once without knowing it? Or all, you know, all these things. Uh, it's hilarious. And and then they never met at all. And Green just ignored him. He didn't explain himself. Didn't just, just kept criticizing. And it was only when, uh, like, nineteen fifty eight or whatever, or fifty nine, when they were shooting the uh, Armand Havana that they got to meet. You know, and. Uh, uh, I mean, Green kind of didn't really care about it, but but uh, Noel Coward still kind of held it against him a bit, you know. He, oh yeah, I mean, I imagine like for a lot of, I mean, <laughs> anybody involved in showbiz, if you give them um, a grievance or a rivalry, they're going to hang on to it like money because a lot of times it can help fuel your ambition. And it can make, I mean, a little healthy competition, I feel like, goes a long way. But the reason I was bringing up Hitch is that some of these books and some of these movies feel like they would have been ideal. Like if you look at something like um, Confidential Agent. Yeah. Like Hitch made movies like this, whether it's Thirty Nine Steps or North by Northwest, and maybe they because they kind of had at least one foot in very, very similar terrain. Perhaps Graham Greene looked upon him as a rival, and maybe that's why he didn't ever want him to adapt any of his books. But they're very different types of storytellers, and obviously Carol Reed was the ideal collaborator in tone and style and temperament. But I do regard it as a little bit of. Um, I guess it's unfortunate just for fans that we never got to see what Hitch might have done with at least one Graham Greene scenario because I feel yeah, like he could have done something special. For sure. I mean, like if Ministry of Fear, for instance, it, yeah, it's, yeah. it's very... It would have been a perfect Hitchcock movie. It, it's very Hitchcocky, and I think in, in um, Fritz Lang's hands, it was a bit of a kind of a fail in, in, a, in a way because he 
for other reasons. But um, you know, yeah, it, it's very Hitchcocky. It's kind of like the Thirty Nine Steps. And yeah, I I don't know why I don't know why it, it never happened. You know, so it's 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 it is a shame, all right. You know. Yeah, I mean, well, I love and admire Graham Greene, but. Hitch wanted to do it. I mean, he wanted to do Iron Man in Havana, and Graham Greene. Oh, yeah. shot, Graham Greene shot him down. So yeah. very, very deliberately. So, but but I think he was he was very close to Carol Reed. Like he developed a very close friendship with uh, with Carol Reed, but more even more especially Alexander Corda. They became very yeah. very close friends. Dynamite producer. Yeah. Till the end of uh, Corda's life. But I, I, something tells me Graham Greene would have been totally fine to have uh, Carol Reed direct each and every single one of his films. And that interview you shared yesterday on Twitter where he's talking about The Third Man. And yeah. He's like, what, what's your next project? He's like, oh, well, whatever it is, like, a, I hope Carol Reed will direct it. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Clearly he's very loyal. It was because of the, it was because of the, uh, the, the way Carol Reed worked with Greene because n- normally he was kind of like messed about by the studios when he was kind of adapting his own work or whatever but Carol Reed it was important for him to be able to get to the actors what the writer actually meant like to be able to tell the actor what the writer meant and to be able to tell the editor what the whole thing was about at the end you know so he, he worked with Green very closely and they, they worked happily together like for, for like Bright for uh, Brighton Rock they went or not Brighton Rock for um, the, the Fallen Idol they went down to um, Brighton and stayed in the hotel for like three months in, in adjoining rooms with, with, with a, a suite with and they just the two of them just worked green with type Carol King would make suggestions. And they, Quick random around. question: Does our wrong real mutual wrong real friend Stephen Simpson doesn't he live in Brighton or near Brighton? I can't Poss- remember. I, I think he does. Possibly. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I've, I've ever, never been to Brighton, but um, yeah, the, yeah. The, the the local dialect is interesting. I got a book on tape of it when I was getting starting to get prepared for this. I was, well, maybe I'll just listen to the audio fiction of it. But the author was leaning so heavily into those Brighton accents. I was like, you know what? I can't listen to this. I got to actually just read the book. <laughs> the Brighton accent was particularly intense in the hands of that narrator. But yeah, I need to confirm with Simpson where he yeah, lives. I, I must admit, I have forgotten. Well, let's start cracking open some of these movies because we've got a, a long list of flicks we want to get to today, some of which are more honorable mentions, some of which are movies deserving entire episodes just entirely about those. So yeah. we're just going to rip through these chronologically. And once again, we're going through some of uh, the best black and white adaptations of his work today. And then later on in 2021, we'll return for a Graham Greene Part 2 and tackle some of the more modern color adaptations. But let's start with... That. He was here looking for you, and he'd better stay away from me. Veronica Lake, who burst on the screen like a blonde bombshell. Alan Ladd, who's dynamite with a gun or a girl. Together, they blast all screen traditions in This Gun for Hire. Drama-packed story of Philip Raven, whose search for vengeance on the man who betrayed him puts a hundred policemen on his trail and forces him to hide behind a girl. Watch it, cover. It's Raven. Do what he says. You stay where you are. There's a dragnet out for you, Raven. It won't do any good to hurt her, so use your head. You better stay put. Who trusts anybody? You couldn't very well complain to the police, could you? I'm my own police. What could you do? First, I'd find out who you're stooging for. And I'd give him what I gave Baker. Don't I? I can't stand violence. Then I'd whittle off a little of that blubber. You still want that stuff from Gates? Of course I do. Help me out of here and I'll get it for you. What was that hot air last night? That flag waving. 
I'll shoot it out with him, and I hope your copper gets the first slug. Gun for Hire, 1942, starring the great Alan Ladd and Veronica Lakes. So I guess my first exposure to this was in a very brief little moment in the background of a scene in L.A. Confidential where you see like uh, Veronica Lake asking for her five bucks back. So I always wanted to see it just because I was like, oh, wow, if it's being included in the background of L.A. Conf- Confidential, it must be one of those essential noirs. But it's in really early. I mean, 1942, film noir didn't really get bleak and pessimistic as it was going to until after yeah. World War II. It kind of reflected post-World War II pessimism yeah. in a lot of ways. But this movie's got one of the all-time great posters. And if you like hard-boiled noir stories, this gun for hire is definitely worth a look. Yeah, I mean, it's directed by Frank Tuttle. But even more importantly, it's the DOP was a guy called John Seitz, who he, he, he would have lens Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard, The Lost Weekend, you know, this, this Five Graves. So, yeah, so it, it, it's, it's got the, the right guy behind the camera. I mean, this gun for hire, it's, ba- it's based on a gun for sale, um, which was a kind of the same story because they kind of remained faithful to the story. They just moved it from England to, to America. But, I mean, this film is more famous for uh, bringing Alan Ladd to our attention and the uh, pairing him with Veronica Lake. Yeah, I think they did three movies together, but this was the first, and they became, I mean, Hollywood loved that back in the day, just putting the same stars together over and over and over again, and they were, their careers would become very much linked in a lot of ways. Yeah, Um, and you know, I I, I don't think Green was ever really happy with any of the, maybe only two two films or three films he was happy with in in terms of adaptations, you know, but um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a nice little noir. I actually watched it about a few months back. Um, I, I, out of the library, I got it like a box set of film noirs and and this was one of them. I'd seen it before years ago, but um, yeah, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's all about Alan Ladd, even though I don't even think you, I think he was like probably like fourth or fifth uh, in the billing, you know, but, um, yeah, I mean, he, this is early. This is long before the days of Shane or anything like that. Like the first time I think I've seen him in anything was he's at the very end of Citizen Kane as one of the journalists. He says, I think, how about it? He has like one line, but you know, he's right. a short man, but a, ve- a very handsome man. But one thing I did not know until I started getting prepped for this episode is that he and Veronica Lake both were serious boozers and they both died at age 50 from yeah. alcohol abuse, which is yeah. remarkable. And like the reason why she, she was smaller than him, he was tiny, and yeah, she was she's teeny. She's, I think she's like four eleven or something. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> she's so, a midget. So, so that was probably why they got paired together yeah. for like another another three films or whatever. But um, yeah, um, yeah, but tragic life, but for for both of them, yeah, you know, like, uh, but yeah, Alan Ladd. Um, I mean, I've I've always been a fan of like the obviously Shane and stuff like that. But um, yeah, he's pretty good in this. I think he, he, after this, he went on to do one of the. Um, was it Raymond Chandler ones or Dashiell Hammett? No, um, the the um, the the Fallen Idol was it? I think I talked about it on one of the Chandler episodes. 
uh, with uh, Simon O'Deal, and it just shows how senile I'm getting, or how I watch too many movies <laughs> where I can't fucking remember anything that I've talked about. <laughs> about. Or the, the Glass Key, I think. The Glass Key. Yeah, Blue Dahlia, yeah. Blue Dahlia as well, yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, so but yeah, it's it's it's, a, it's kind of like a, a no a noir classic. Um, it, it it wouldn't be one of my favorite green adaptations. It's so and or or noirs either. You know? Yeah, I think it's a very solid kind of not routine B movie, but a very cool B movie. But it's not going to be one of those ones like Double Indemnity that makes you fall in love with film noir. This is one of those movies that you watch because, oh my God, that's the coolest looking poster I've ever seen. I love these stories with like tough talking girls and tough talking guys where everybody's killing each other and drinking and yeah. having sex, etc. And so it is a, a ton of fun, but not necessarily like an exemplary movie in any way. But it's got some cool little lines that I like. There's a do 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 do. It's like, you're trying to make me go soft. Well, you can save it. I don't go soft for anybody. It's just, and it was stuff that gets very easy, easily satired or parodied but when yeah. it's done with total sincerity it's really cool and also quick question i saw this note on imdb they claim that in the book gun for sale raven the character played by uh, alan ladd is responsible for the death of a character mentioned in green's book brighton rock meaning oh, that yeah. there's a shared universe so which character is that but uh, it, was he doing something like elmore leonard where different characters would pop up in different thrillers that he wrote no, I mean, I think it was only confined to these books, for to, to these to these two, you know, the gangster. I think it's, it's the gangster that Pinky kills in uh, Brighton Rock, um, is the reason for um, the new gangsters that he has to deal with. With the character Raven has to deal with something like that, you know. I can't. It's um, yeah, I can't. I can't remember now offhand. I'm actually halfway through. I was I, I was reading uh, this gun for sale, um, and I'm about, I'm about halfway through it. At the moment, I I, I kind of reread uh, Our Man Havana. I listened to that audio book version of Third Man with uh, James Mason, even though even though I'd read um, I'd read the book already, but I wanted to just to hear James Mason read it. Was was pretty oh, cool. Yeah, you know? he, he's a m marvelous uh, marvelous actor. Uh, but I guess like other little details in this that I like, they just kind of set the tone. I love when Alan Ladd when one of the first scenes he walks into this guy's office and this guy refers to this total slut lounging on the couch like oh don't mind her she's just my secretary it's like secretary <laughs> <laughs> and i love that so, or like lines when um the character willard gates says oh, such a lovely body it's revolting and so yeah it's just if you're a fan of hard-boiled stories this gun for hire absolutely well worth hunting down but i wouldn't necessarily say that it's the gateway drug into the world of uh, graham green but also i should have mentioned wr burnett was one of the screenwriters who adapted the book. And W.R. Burnett, he had a pretty extraordinary career in his own right. I mean, he wrote like Little Caesar. I think he worked on The Great, yeah, he worked on The Great Escape, High Sierra. I mean, W.R. Burnett was a major screenwriter. So while I think it's totally justifiable that Graham Greene hated or had issues with pretty much every single time Hollywood took a crack at one of his books, you know, but if you're a W.R. Burnett fan, all the more reason to check out This Gun for Hire. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. That's, I mean, it's there like as a one for uh, an honorable mention, really, you know, yeah. but um, it wouldn't be a, a go to uh, for your first green experience, really. Yeah, Although I'd not, say a lot of people have seen. Unless you're a just a of, film noir buff. There's some people who are like, yeah. they look at a list of like top 500 film noir from the 40s and 50s and they just start drooling and salivating like, oh, I need to see them all. I'm like, 
okay, <laughs> go, go do it. Have fun. Yeah. But some, some people are the exact same way about spy movies. And I feel like spy movies and espionage movies or cloak and dagger movies, that definitely was um, one of Graham Greene's major strengths as, a, as an entertainer, which brings us to Ministry of Fear from 1944, a movie directed by Fritz Lang and starring my grandmother's favorite movie star, Ray Milland. And this is a movie that's available via Criterion Collection on DVD and Blu-rays. So... Start us up. What do you have to say about Ministry of Fear? Because it sounded like earlier, when, the way you referred to it, that this is not necessarily your your favorite Graham Greene adaptation. Yeah, I mean, it it, it is. I mean, I like it. You know, and I mean, Ray Milland is Milland is great. He, it's like one year before he won the Oscar for uh, Last Weekend. You know, so it's he, he's in top form. Um, yeah, I mean, I like it. You know, there's so, there's some really interesting things because like. Everybody knows Fritz Lang. It's you're either talking about M or Metro, Metropolis or something like that. Oh, well, um, I have a lot of affection for things like Scarlet Street and The Woman in the Window. Like when he started doing his down and dirty kind of murder story, psychological thrillers in the '40s that were slightly lower budget. Those are really good. I wouldn't necessarily say that Ministry of Fear is my favorite American movie that uh, Fritz Lang made, not by a long shot. No, but I do love the shadow play. And I yep. really love the seance. This movie's got two really the good scenes when it comes to show. The seance yes. scene is riveting. Yep. And then the very end when the guy, um, it's like he turns off the lights and he runs out the door and his sister shoots him through the door. And just if you enjoy seeing a director's photography playing with light like a painting, Ministry of yep. Fear is uh, essential viewing. This is the Ministry of Fear a network of terror that lays bare the secrets locked in every man's mind, using strange hypnotic torture, relentless, cunning, tangling their quarry in a web of horror until he reaches the brink of madness. Who speaks? Who said that? Don't break the circle. Who told you that? <laughs> Turn on the lights! Turn on the lights! Turn on the lights! Turn on the lights! Light. Cost. Look at cost. There is no escape from the Ministry of Fear, where menace lurks behind every shadow, where a blind man sees and strikes in the night. Ministry of Fear, starring Ray Milland as a man obsessed by murder, with Marjorie Reynolds as his only hope, through a nightmare of never-ending flight. Willie asked me if I was falling in love with you. And? I said... Yes. I know my record. You can send me back to the asylum on any charge. I don't care what you do with me. I tell you, they did it. I ask you for one fair chance to prove it. Nobody lives here. No cigarettes, no personal belongings, nothing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, I, I think Fritz Lang, I mean, he had some problems because the producer, his producer on this film, uh, a, a guy called uh, Seton Miller, was also uh, the writer, you know. Yeah. And so, and like, Fritz, Fritz Lang felt that uh, he had um, 
this guy had, had, had defanged Green's novel, yeah. you know, by... I think the exact by, quote was, Lang said it had practically none of the quality of Graham Greene's book. But because Lang was for hire, yeah, it's hard. If you get the producer and the screenwriter who are one and the same, that yeah. person might as well just direct the fucking thing. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> At that point, they have total control. So, yeah, I, I think Fritz Lang, for him, it, it was basically just a bit of pocket money or an earner. And uh, he, he, he probably tried to get his uh, the film he wanted to make the, 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 uh, more true to the to the book, to Green's book. But he, he just it was beyond his control. So it kind of um, maybe shows a little bit, in it, you know, but there's some, like there's some I love like the whole um the, the scene in the fairground, you know, when he when the guy, or even the beginning, like it starts off with the clock, you know, and you, you're kind of you, you're not really sure exactly what, where the guy is or what he's doing, and yeah, just the idea of having a hero or a protagonist is being released from the nut house at the very beginning of the movie, like, oh, all right, yeah, where's this gonna I go? Mean, yeah, absolutely, you know, like the whole paranoia thing of it, and you don't, and then you don't know, like, is he just crazy, <laughs> you know, and and this, this, this all, he's just imagining because because some of the stuff is so so random that happens to him, you know, when, when he goes to the fairground, and I, and I I do like how all that stuff is shot. And then, That's where where I feel like Hitchcock could have really thrived, like the, just the idea of an international plot involving a cake just seems so inherently silly in a lot of ways. But yeah. Hitch is the kind of director who could find the humor and all that and turn yeah. it into like one of the great MacGuffins. Whereas Fritz Lang was many things. I don't know if anyone's going to accuse him of being like the most hilarious director who ever yeah, lived. Yeah. So yeah. he's not thinking of the director who's going to find the uh, the gag at the heart of all this stuff. Yeah, but, but there's still some great scenes there. And I, I like the, he, he meets this blind guy on the train after he's left the fairground. He's got the cake and he offers the guy some cake. And the guy's like looking for something in the cake. He's grinding you know, it up. It's like a scene straight out of Lady Vanishes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and then the guy like bashes him over the head with the stick like and legs it off. And then it's... In the middle of the war, there's bombs falling, and uh, the guy gets blown to Kingdom Come, you know. But I think a lot of this film was like was kind of a propaganda film as well for the like, the whole anti-Nazi thing running through it, um, and of course with uh, Fritz Lang's uh, own background. Yeah, I mean Hollywood. Um, was not afraid to crank out some uh, some propaganda in the 1940s, and Fritz Lang made a lot of them. Fritz Lang, being from Germany, yeah. who was not a fan of the Nazis at all, he made movies like Cloak and Dagger. He made Ministry of Fear, but he he definitely was more than happy to go to work, um, kind of um, for for the war effort. And Hollywood and the U.S. government were definitely working hand in hand in terms of just keeping people's spirits high, and also people have to remember. A lot of these movies were being first seen by soldiers sent abroad, so they're trying to keep the morale high with the soldiers. So it, Hollywood played a huge, important role in the overall war effort. Sorry. Okay, better. Come on, into your chair. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no worries. I, I am a dog lover, so the fact that uh, the dog is part of the show is uh, puts a big smile on my face. But dogs and cats are always welcome on every episode of Wrong Real. Yeah, no, my, my, my mother was just like sticking it. She, she wants to be in with you. She wants to be in with you. Yeah, like, some, okay. sometimes dogs just don't know what they want. Like, like if you let the dog sleep on the on your bed and they spend the whole yeah. night changing their position, it's like, all right. Just figure figure it out, <laughs> but they can't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but another thing I liked about Ministry of Fear is the appearance of Erskine Sanford, who was obviously hysterical in Citizen Kane and um, you know a bit of a character actor. But I always love seeing somebody from Orson's gang popping yeah. up in other people's movies, and uh, I love how like 
just little things like when the um when Ray Milan first sees the guy who he was accused of killing at the seance, when he sees him alive as alive and well, he's carrying like just the largest pair of scissors I've ever seen, which is like you could say that's like phallic or it's implying he's yeah. like a killer or whatever. But yeah, really the the showstopper of this movie is when Ray Milan shows up and meets this ridiculously sophisticated, beautiful blonde in evening attire, but she looks almost like a supervillain, and she starts this seance where everybody's faces are lit, everything else is in total darkness. It almost feels like a, like a Bugs Bunny cartoon in some ways. It's so completely o- over the top, but it's one of the more bizarre and supernatural scenes of the 1940s. Yeah, I mean, like for me, like some of this film is kind of creepy. Like, getting back to the fairground thing as well, it's kind of creepy. It's, it's, it's almost like one of those... Um, the what's it the date not the um invasion of the body snatchers in a way you know has those kind of undertones of like uh all these people are kind of corrupt and you're not paranoid if the people that you're paranoid about are really after you yeah yeah exactly yeah it's a good paranoid movie and once again i would not put this at um i wouldn't make this the first stop on the train ride to learning about his career but if you're uh, i mean there are a lot of people out there who will watch any movie by Criterion Collection. So if your Criterion is your bread and butter, go to it. Enjoy Ministry of Fear. And, if, and if also there are a lot of um, Fritz Lang completionists out there. I think I've seen every single American film by Lang except for one. I was writing this blog post like five years ago. I wanted to just tackle just his Hollywood movies. So that was the first time I saw Ministry of Fear uh, back then when I was preparing. But it, I, I don't think I ranked it. Can't even remember. The list was my top ten Fritz Lang movies made in Hollywood. Yeah. I can't even remember if I if I included it or not. Yeah, I haven't. I, I, it's kind of a hole for me. I have to fill really. I, I've I've seen like some of the German ones, but not not, not too many of the American ones. But also the the guy who plays the doctor in this, Alan Napier. He 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 was Alfred the Butler in the TV series of Batman. He, he pops up in there as well. Yeah, so I just found my list that I wrote back in 2015, September 23rd. So yeah, about a year into Wrong Reel. And the way I ranked him at the time, I don't know if I'd rank him the same way now. I said 10, I said Beyond a Reasonable Doubt. Then I did Cloak and Dagger. Then The Woman in the Window. Ministry of Fear, I put it number 7. Clash by Night, number 6. The Big Heat, number 5. Rancho Notorious, number 4. You Only Live Once, number 3. Fury, number 2. And Scarlet Street, number 1. So I'd have to watch all the films again to see if I still hold true to that list, but that's how I felt five years ago. Yeah, that's good. Alrighty, well, let's dig into a movie. I'm actually going to part ways with Graham Greene on this because this was his favorite Hollywood adaptation, (laughs) but I don't think it's necessarily one of the strongest adaptations of his stuff, but we got Confidential Agent from 1945. Once again, I feel like in the hands of Alfred Hitchcock could have been a masterpiece, but it's shot by James Wong Ho, who Gorgeous cinematographer, stars Charles Boyer and Lauren McCall, two actors that I love. I think yeah. maybe the reason I'm not as infatuated with this as Graham Greene is I feel the running time in a big way. This is a two-hour yeah. movie, and it feels longer. Yes, yes, for sure. And, and apparently, like, there's like I, I couldn't. I was looking out for them. There's like jump cuts because they were cutting so much out of it just yeah. to kind of get it down to two hours. And um, yeah, well, I watched it. A few nights ago, pretty late, and I, I was looking at my watch for the, the last half hour, you know, God, it was like three o'clock in the morning. But um, I don't know, you know, I because I, like, Lauren Bacall, she got slammed. It was her third film, and she got slammed, and she for, for the rest of her life, you know, she just hated the, her performance in this. But for me, it's, you know, it's, it's Lauren Bacall. She shows up. She's got a bag full of booze. You know, she, she's, she's ready to party, and... Uh, I, li- I liked her in it, you know. Well, that's she- the reason people keep talking about this movie. It seems like it's a f- 
not a footnote, but it's a huge part of the Lauren Bacall narrative and Lauren Bacall story. Obviously, she had to have and have not made her an icon overnight. She came roaring yeah. out of the gate at age 19. She got involved with Humphrey Bogart. Suddenly, she's Hollywood royalty, and her follow-up film is Confidential Agent, which did not land with the same impact as to have yeah, and have I, not. And people just people ate her alive for it. I, I mean, it's got like Peter Laurie in it as well, you know. Yep. So you kind of you kind of half expect Bogey to show up at some point. And yeah, he, it would have been a good cameo. Yeah. And, and maybe, maybe because he didn't show up was part of the reason why. Uh, and I, you know the way the the, the the Hollywood press or whatever they like to take people down. They like probably had it in for her because she was like got such an easy ride on her first couple of films. You know what I mean? So um, I don't know. Yes, it's 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 nothing special. You know, it's a it, it's it's not like one of the, one of the best movies either. But it's it's definitely uh, like you were saying. Like most of the films that I rewatch for this, um, I got them on Criterion, and they just look fantastic. You know, yeah. I have to say. You know, so. I, I, for for this one especially, I was like just soaking up the atmosphere in, in, in it really, and I and I enjoyed it because I I, w- I was expecting not to enjoy it because I knew that them um, the, the the reviews and stuff had been bad. But yeah, like you said, Green Green, it was one of his favorite ad- adaptations of his yeah, work. Yeah, his, his exact quote was the only good film ever made from one of my books by an American director. That's pretty. That's a pretty strong statement. Yeah, but I'm sure that that was probably. In 1947, he said that when... Yeah, I can't remember wh- when and where and how and what context he said that, but, um, it, yeah, I, I don't know what criteria he would use to judge that. I guess, but, but let me just flip the question on to you. In your opinion, what is the best adaptation of Graham Greene, not by Carol Reed? Not by Carol Reed. Well... Another film that we won't be talking about today is is the uh, 2001 remake of The Quiet American. Gotcha. Which, which I, I don't know, have you seen it? I unfortunately have not, but I know it stars Michael Caine. And I, yeah. I remember at the time, it, it was a sensation, but for whatever reason, I just didn't catch it at the time. But I'm looking forward to watching it for our part two. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, for me, and, and of course, Green would never have seen that, which it, it is a, a really faithful adaptation of, of The Quiet American, whereas the 1958 version wasn't, you know, and he, he, for the rest of his life, like, he could handle people changing his stories, changing his scripts and stuff like that. He, he, he kind of may, may, might, might make a sharp comment about it, but he, he moved on. But he never moved on from the 1958 version yeah. of The Quiet American. It pissed him off till the day he died. You know, well, it's it, because it, they start changing the meaning and the intent of the story. And totally. it's one thing if you make superficial changes to make it yeah. more palatable. If you they start fundamentally changing yeah. the DNA of the tale, well, then, yeah, yeah it's time to disown something. Yeah. So, so, but getting to your question. So, yes, um, I really liked. I, I really liked the, the, the remake of that. Um, but I'm trying to think of of, of these ones. Um, not made by. Yeah, I would say. Um, like for me, Brighton Rock is my favorite. Is my number two on this list. But that's obviously not a Hollywood movie. It's a you know it's another yeah. British film. Sure. Um, Maybe you like, just I need re- British filmmakers to do Graham Greene right because Graham Greene. Even though he's a world tra- traveler, is quintessentially English in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, I I, I liked, I really liked John Ford's The Fugitive, you know. Gotcha. Um, and I, I think, in a, in his own way, Ford was the best person to make that film because it's it's still the kind of the Wild West, even though it's Mexico and there's lots of scenes with horses stuff in it. Um, it, it I, I I like that. I, I suppose. Um, yeah. Although again, it was watered down. You know, it, it, there was there, people were always a bit afraid of the censors and a bit afraid of public opinion 
that they often watered down. Even Graham, Graham Green, we'll get to it in Brighton Rock, but he modified the ending slightly for the censors. Yeah. But before we move on from Confidential Agent, I mean, I don't want to sound unnecessarily harsh because of Lauren Bacall's performance because I feel like it's an inconsistent... She's very inexperienced at this point, and she probably yeah. had already agreed to do this prior to becoming a big star to have and have not. And in, her, in her autobiography, she begged and pleaded not to do this. I think she was young enough where she still needed really strong directors to help her generate a very consistent performance. And obviously Howard Hawks did that with To Have and Have Not and The yeah. Big Sleep a few years later and made her a massive star. And it's like a perfect situation where the, both the performer and the director were like in sync with the kind of, kind of story they wanted to tell. When you watch this performance, sometimes that classic deep Lauren Bacall way of speaking, it slips and you hear it going high. And you're like, oh, wait, where did that come from? Like the whole persona... It's not consistent with the persona that she was crafting at that time. And at that time, whether you're Cary Grant or Gary Cooper or whomever, they all had these great larger-than-life personas that they would kind of use again and again with each movie. And I think that's why some people reject Confidential Agent is that it's not consistent with The Big Sleep and To Have and Have Not. But Charles Boyer, he's, he's an great. interesting uh, yeah. leading man. And like he was great in Gaslight when he's trying to drive his wife crazy and things like that. I think a lot of people sleep on just how fun Charles Boyer was back in the day. Yeah. Yeah, I think there was was a Howard Hawks who said about Bacall, like she let her voice get high again, and as a result, no one liked her in it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, also Howard Hawks is one of my all-time favorite filmmakers. He also was totally unafraid to lie or bend the truth to suit his own narrative or needs, and obviously, yeah. he didn't want other star, other directors breaking or mismanaging his discovery. Yeah, sure, because sure. it was actually Hawks's wife who discovered her, saw her on the cover of a Harper's Bazaar. And said, oh, she's an interesting girl. You might want to check her out for your next movie. And all of her mannerisms and her lines and way of speaking were ripped from Howard Hawks' wife. So the fact that her character's name was Slim and to have and have not, so was Howard Hawks' wife. All right. The way she smokes, the way she would say things like, you know, sometimes you're just a stinker. Like all these kind of things. So basically that persona was basically lifted from Howard Hawks' wife at the time. And Howard Hawks was a notorious womanizer and was trying to seduce Lauren Bacall and got a little bitter when Humphrey Bogart beat him to it. Got in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah sure. That's interesting. I didn't know that about that, about his wife. That's, yeah, Slim. Cool. Slim Hawks. Slim. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's more quintessentially Hawksian than the fact that he was married to a girl named Slim? Yeah. <laughs> it's just classic. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, let's move on to the film you just mentioned, The Fugitive from 1947, directed by John Ford, but also uncredited director Emilio Fernandez, a.k.a. Mapache himself yeah. from The Wild Bunch, who was a major figure in the Mexican film industry as producer and as a director and as a star. And this is a really interesting Hollywood-Mexico co-production where you've got uh, Gabriel Figueroa as the photographer who would shoot yeah. things like Los Olvidados for Luz, Luz Buñuel and the Extraordinary yeah. Angel. This is a really unusual movie where I guess like you have some examples like the Spanish-language version of Dracula, but I can't think of another example where like a major Hollywood director like John Ford is yeah. going off to Mexico and working with like a giant Mexican crew in a lot of ways and cast yeah. making this really unusual movie. But it was for uh, a lot of people regarded as John, John Ford's final art film. And yeah. he, uh, he, it was a great personal favorite. Of yeah, John he Ford. loved it. He loved it. And I think the experience for him to get away from the whole Hollywood unionized type set to work with 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 a Amer with a Mexican crew that like he, he said they they were as good as any Hollywood crew any day of the week you know, but um yeah it's it again I mean the fugitive so it's it's from Graham Greene's book The Power and the Glory 
which I think in, in America it was called the Labyrinth Ways. Um, and yeah, I mean, I can see why Ford wanted to direct it. Again, he really changed a lot of the essence of Green's novel uh, in, in the terms. So like in Green's novel, when, when Green went to Mexico, he heard about this priest who was like um, for 10 years was like wandering in the, in the kind of outback, Mexican outback, uh, performing uh, christenings and masses and uh, he was an alcoholic dr drunk we're, we're doing mass so the people would give him whiskey and stuff and eventually i think he might have been killed but um green heard about this guy and in in, in john ford's version it's it's a, a very fresh-faced henry fonda but he's not really a whiskey priest you know he's kind of a yeah, i think henry fonda was miscast and i'm i say this as one of the biggest henry yeah, fonda fans and, on the planet i mean but if you compare this performance to something like uh, My Darling Clementine or Ford Apache, two other John Ford films he made around the same time, yeah. he's way better. I think Henry Fonda is not kind of a meek, humble, cowardly priest in any way, shape, or form. Yes. And he could have hired anybody, and they probably would have been better cast. Yeah. Especially when Pedro Armendariz, if I'm saying that correctly, is so charismatic and so dynamic. And uh, Pedro would work with John Ford on Fort Apache, Three Godfathers. And then his final movie, one of the uh, James Bond's allies in, from Russia with Love, who takes him on that tour by boat down in the uh, Basilica Cistern. Right, yes. Yeah, so it's, it's um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to like about this film. I mean, I, there's some great sequences that, like, you know, with, with the cavalry and stuff coming into town that, that are John Ford all over. And I thought there's one shot when, when, when the uh, lieutenant, when the police lieutenant is, on his horse riding back and forth in front of the crowd of people looking to know where, where the priest is. And it's like a, it's a big, long one, one take shot, long track. And the guy's moving at quite a pace back and forth on the horse and the camera moves really fast and stops and goes back just as quick, really smooth. This is like 1947. Like it's, it's, it's a fantastic shot. Like, so I, I really like the, there was a lot to like about it. Yes, the, the story was missing because in, in the book, the priest is also the father of the child. You know, this 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 woman, he's, he has a child and he's a total, complete uh, sinner. You know, there's all these kind of allegories to to him being G, like Jesus in a way, you know, the, the, the first sinner and stuff. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just an interesting uh, film, especially when you think about, like, Ford. Um, he, he, he'd like, you know... It's a bit out of his element. You said it's considered his like last art house film or art film. Yeah, because he know, would with... do things like The Long Voyage Home or The Informer or Grapes of Wrath. And then by the late 40s, he starts switching full-blown into doing like his Cavalry Trilogy or things like uh, The Searchers. He starts drifting away from his more art house stuff or like um, uh, How Green Was My Valley. But he really loved just looking at it. And Gabriel Figueroa shot the shit out of it. And what's interesting to me, though, is that Dudley Nichols, who's one of the great screenwriters who wrote friggin' Stagecoach, you don't get a lot of evidence of his writing because it's such a visual movie, and they're telling yeah. pretty much everything in pictures. So I don't know if Dudley Nichols wrote it that way, but when I think Dudley Nichols, I think Stagecoach. And so I know that this movie, when it was a giant flop, it caused a rift between Nichols and John Ford, and I don't know if they ever worked together again. But yeah, it's, it's, it, I suppose for people at the time, they'd be going to see a John Ford movie with Henry Fonda. They'd be expecting something very different. My Darling you know, Clementine, to, yeah. My Darling Clementine, I believe, came out the previous year and it was a yeah, monster yeah. hit. It's a great big wide Earp, almost kind of Disney-fied version of it, but it's a fuckload of fun to watch. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so I think that, that probably played into it a little bit. But again, it's just, 
it's just one of these um, curiosity to be able to to, to see this um, film from this period of Ford's work, you know. And it's an unusual choice for him to make, you know, to make to, to, to shoot this type of film. Well, but, I just love the idea that like twenty years later, the co-director and associate producer on this movie would be teaming up with Sam Peckinpah to make yet another you know crazy movie, the the, the Wild Bunch. But I, yeah, Amelia Fernandez is one of those figures I need to learn a lot more about. Because one of the only other times I see him really popping up in history is when he's kind of going to war with uh, Jodorowsky in the 60s, when Jodorowsky didn't want to have to go through the unions in order to make uh, Fondo Elise, or Fondo Elise, I think is the correct pronunciation. But Fernandez, I think, was like amongst like Mexican filmmaking royalty for a very, very long time. And yeah. I think for whatever reason... Now people talk about Mexican filmmakers a lot with like Alfonso Cuaron and um, Guillermo del Toro and Alejandro González Iñárritu, but people don't talk about Mexican films from the 40s really at all. They start talking about it when Luis Buñuel goes to live there and starts making movies there, but Luis yeah. Buñuel is Spanish. And so I, it's, it's one of those areas that I need to uh, devote a lot more time and attention to. Yeah, I mean, like most of us just... Or most people would know Emilio Fernandez just for the Wild Bunch, but like he, you know, he 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 directed so many films himself. You know, he was like a a, a big uh, a big name there in the t- at the time. You know, but, yeah, hang on, uh, let me just look up Emilio Fernandez real quick and just see uh, what else because he, he, I, th- I remember looking up on IMDb. So he has got ninety acting credits and forty three writing credits and forty three directing credits. I mean. He was yeah, not, I mean, his, he was not he was not idle. <laughs> yeah, I mean his his film he directed Maria Candelaria. It won the Pandora in the nineteen forty six Cannes Film Festival. You know, so he's he's not like just a he wasn't just a kind of a small time Mexican filmmaker. Or whatever he was he was on the world stage. You know, yeah, he's an institution unto himself without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's probably why he got on so well with guys like with with Peck and Pie, You know, especially they they were kind of of the same cut from the same cloth you know okay well now at last we get to brighton rock from 1948 which as i mentioned before i actually read in preparation for this uh, show so i've officially pulled off the band-aid or popped my cherry when it comes to reading graham green and i think That's of all the choice. films that we saw in preparation for this episode i think this is my second favorite behind the third man although fallen idol has a lot of ingredients that i really love as well but for people who may or may not have ever heard of brighton rock give us the uh, the gist of this story yeah so again like um yeah this this this, this is like uh it's it's about this kind of gang warfare basically i mean I, I don't know a lot of people probably watch peaky blinders and they know about sort of like these these kind of gangster gangs who kind of run the race courses and stuff so it kind of it's 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 set in that in in that world in brighton um i mean brighton's a big kind of fancy holiday place where people go but back at this time it was quite seedy and, it's kind of like uh, atlantic city basically like where it's like a port town with a lot of gambling or yeah, uh, yes, exactly. L- lots of like amusement arcades and all that sort of stuff, you know. Um, and and the, the name Brighton Rock is like, well, when you go to the seaside here, you, you get this kind of long tube of like white and red kind of peppermint candy. It's, it's called a stick of rock. <laughs> and so the Brighton Rock is a stick of rock, you know what I mean? It's this, this kind of sweet that the, the children would chew on. But um, yeah, I mean, he, he, he wrote it, um, he, he wrote it in like the... Uh, in the early forties, and it, it was a play for it, it ran like for a, a good a couple of years, and um, one of the people who was cast in, in it was Richard Attenborough in the play. You know, and he played he he was um, he, he was rehired he was uh, 
recast then in the film, and it's his film. I mean, it makes it really makes. Uh, he, he's so good in this Richard Attenborough. He, I had no idea he could be this good. I'd seen he, him in like The Great Escape and Jurassic Park, and I'd seen some movies he directed like Gandhi. I yeah. had no clue that Richard Attenborough could be as chilling and charismatic chilling. as he is yeah. in this movie. Yeah, no, he's fantastic in it. You know, this is this film made him. Without this film, there would be no uh, Roger Bartlett in The Great Escape or his directing career. You know, this really established him as 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 one of the uh, actors of his generation. You know, and yeah, it's and again, it's. Green is all over this character. This character is a, a, a Catholic. You know, he's he's, he's a got a lot of issues to put him on. He's, he's, <laughs> a lot of, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of contradictions. He's tormented. You know, he's a committed sinner, and uh, th- there's like lo- lots of t- t- talk between him and the girls about God and heaven and all this sort of stuff. You know, and let's just say he's got some mixed, ambivalent, unresolved feelings about the physical act of love that are described in great detail, but he is repulsed by. The, 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 the dirty deed because as a kid every Saturday night he had to watch his mother and father just rutting away on top of each other right there like on the bed in front of him and he's been just disgusted by sex ever since yeah yeah no it's, it's, it's yeah it's a very it's a very uh, good character it's, it's one of his uh, one of his best characters especially in the book I read the book a good few years ago now so I'm kind of um I, I I can't remember how close the uh, film is. Well, in the book, he's seventeen, and I get the sense that he's much more like maladjusted. Like Richard Attenborough, he's so handsome and so slick and like young and beautiful and so well dressed. The character's a little bit more grown up in the movie, and so that that was like the big deviation from the book. Because yeah. I read the book before I saw the movie, so I had no idea. So that interpretation was very uh, fresh compared to what I had just experienced. But I love villains who speak very softly and are very chilling, and he's incredibly intimidating, but he never raises his voice. If anything, he, the more quiet he gets, the more terrifying he becomes. Yeah, you expect him just to be exploding at any moment. You know, it's, it's, Yeah, he's very, very intense. In his, um, I, I, you'd never seen this film before. I've never you know? seen it. I mean, I, I, I have no idea who this director is, but I'm going to have to start seeing more of his movies because I looked him up. This is the first movie by him that I've ever seen, but what was this? name uh john john bolting john yeah, bolting john bolting and he's directed a ton of movies but the movie is just like the editing and the photography are just astonishing like the scene where spicer and picky get ambushed with the the razor blades it's got yeah. like that soviet style rapid fire editing with all these crazy extreme close-ups like if you're a fan of filmmaking technique brighton rock is just a delight to look at well as, as we were saying here you like it's it the 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 director of photography was Harry Waxman, who done uh, The Wicker Man, The Day the Earth Caught Fire, um, and uh, Daughters of Darkness, The Vampires, and The Nanny. You know, so there was like, but they, they also used like they they put they hidden cameras on the street. You know, so they filmed they filmed in Brighton amongst the crowd and just had like hidden cameras, which is probably a, a kind of fairly novel thing to Wasn't do. Wasn't Brighton you know? kind of resistant to the movie because they thought it portrayed it in a negative light whereas in the 30s brighton had been way more shady but they were trying to clean up the reputation by the late 40s yeah and, and they, they refused permission to use their, their race course and stuff for it but i think brighton always gets it because then in the the quadrophenia you know <laughs> in oh, 20 that's years where later, the mods and the rockers have their big the brawl. Mods and the rockers you know gotcha. and that, the, it, that's where the star uh, is having it off and the uh shagging that girl in the uh, in the alleyway during the middle of like the physical riots here that's, exactly. that's a great scene 
Yeah, like I, I went to Brighton once, I, myself and this this guy from uh, Argentina. We just had, let's go. To, we heard there was a big free free party on the beach with some DJ, Fat Boy Slim or something, playing on the beach. So we went down with a load of ketamine and other things, and I just. <laughs> And we, we got off the train station. It's, it's just outside of Brighton. And then you have to kind of walk down through. All, there's all these like alleyways and streets. And we were in the back alleyways doing bumping lines, lines of ketamine. And then just kind of come down, down to this just crazy packed. Everybody from all over England kind of converges on this place. So, yeah, um, it's it's a pretty good spot. And then they've got the old piers and all that there. Well, you if know? Stephen Simpson does, in fact, live there, and maybe I'm making that up, <laughs> but I think he does. I think we need a, a wrong rail road trip where we all converge on Brighton Rock and just get properly <laughs> destroyed for a couple of days. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, let's talk a little bit about Carol Marsh, who plays Rose. And she responded to a casting call or an ad in the newspaper that said they were looking for somebody frail, innocent, naive, tolerably but not excessively pretty. And she shows up and... As soon as I saw her on screen, I knew I recognized her, and I couldn't figure out why. But I was like, I kept thinking that she must, she needs to have fangs. And finally, I realized, Horror of Dracula. She plays Lucy in Horror of Dracula. You know, ten years later, and she's great in Horror of Dracula. So this whole movie, I kept expecting her at any moment to just like latch onto Richard Attenborough and start like you know sucking his blood. But she yeah. is fucking delightful in this role. And my, my favorite moment of the whole movie. It's when she's standing outside this little recording booth and she's asking Pinky to record some declaration of love, even though they don't own a phonograph. So he's just, he's recording this, like just deluge of shit talking like, I hate you, like you're a slut, I wish you would die. But she thinks he's, you know, whispering sweet nothings. And so she's gazing through the glass with complete and total affection, unbridled love, yeah. while he is just pouring venom all over her. Yeah. Look, Pinky, make a record of your voice for me. Doesn't cost very much. We haven't got a gramophone. If ever you're away, I can borrow one. And then I can hear your voice. All right. You asked me to make a record in my voice. Well, here it is. What you want me to say is I love you. Here's the truth. I hate you, you little slut. You make me sick. Why don't you get back to Nelson Place and leave me be? It's a nasty piece. And, and of course, this was one of the uh, kind of uh, things that Graham Greene... he agreed to change, you know, the ending. He wasn't happy about it, you know, but they believe like that the, the censors, they wanted a happy ending, you know. And I, I read somewhere in an interview with him, he said, well, you know, the, at the end of the movie, when she just hears it, she's going to play the whole record anyway. <laughs> you yeah, know, like, so the, the recording is, you asked me to make a record of me voice. Well, here it is. What you want me to say is I love you. Here's the truth. I hate you, you little slut, like dot, dot, dot. But when she plays the record at the end, it gets stuck on I love you. The, needles, the needle gets stuck. So she just keeps repeating, uh, yeah. I love you, I love I you, love I love you. Love. And so Graham yeah. Green says, oh, well, any intelligent audience member knows that eventually she's going to move the needle past the scratch and she'll hear the rest. Don't think I repent, I don't. I repent not dying. Go on, don't be afraid. I, I ought to come with him. I ought to come with him. I don't want any absolution ever. I'd be with him if I was damned too. That woman said he wanted to get rid of me. She doesn't know a thing about love. Perhaps she was right, Richard. 
And you don't either. I know. I've got proof. I've got his voice. I don't want to be forgiven. I'm afraid of missing him. My child, there's always hope. It's the air we breathe. You can't understand, nor I, nor anyone for that matter, the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God. We have to hope and pray. I want to help, but I don't know how. You say he loved you. There's hope. Even that sort of love? Any love. He loved me. I'll show you he loved me. Mother, can I? If you want to. to compromise his own ending for the movie and I think it plays fine for the ending but I prefer the book which is obviously the most cliche thing someone could say yeah. but yeah. god damn I think in terms the books I think 269 pages or so it's not a terribly long novel but obviously if you're making a, a 90 minute movie and this is a 90 minute movie you do have to condense things. I was blown yeah. away by the economy of the storytelling, just how well they adapted things. I barely could even tell what was being left on the cutting room floor. I couldn't believe just how faithful the adaptation was overall, uh, apart yeah. from the uh, the ending. Yeah, no, it's it, it is. It's it, it, it's very faithful, and yeah, I, I love it. I, I love uh, a lot. I've seen it quite a few times now. I love the. The, the whole idea of the reporter who has to who has to kind of be he's the kind of the secret reporter who people want have to approach and say are you this guy or whatever you know but um yeah it's a what the whole thing is that it's Richard Attenborough he, he just shines through and and, and and he kind of like takes over everything really and um, uh Hermione Baddeley if I'm saying it correctly as Ida I think I liked Ida a little bit more in the book just because in the book they definitely lean more into her overt sexuality and the way she uses these giant tits of hers to kind of keep guys like dangling and like you know she's very easy she's very adept at manipulating men and she spends half the the story completely trash but she's this very like determined resolute pitbull when it comes to being like a private investigator detective and she just will not let go of what she knows is something that like a murder that got overlooked and she's just determined to see it through. And so she's a fascinating amateur detective. And so I like the way the actress played her in the movie, but the character is just obviously just more fleshed out in the book. So I feel like if there's one flaw in the movie is that her character got condensed a bit, which obviously is totally natural because they're condensing everything. Sure. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, this, this film, you know, it, it was like uh it was banned in like New, New South Wales they, they, because of the whole kind of the, the juvenile delinquent thing, you know. So it kind of it made waves when it came, when it came out. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely one of the uh, the in the top five of Graham Greene's films. I should have uh, marked the pages uh, so I could read them right off the uh, right here and now. But I, I just did a quick scan. I couldn't find them. But if you if anyone out there 
has ever felt grossed out by some of the uh, the wondrous exchange of bodily fluids, you got to read this book because you will relate to Pinky because <laughs> Pinky is so completely grossed out by kissing, by having sex, by, by all of the above. He just signs it all just to be so mysterious and so tedious. And he just, all he wants to do is just make money and work and kill and just be this violent little savage. And so I found, I, I always love a well-written villain and Pinky was just absolutely fascinating. He might be the most interesting character of the characters that I've been exposed to written by Graham Greene, Pinky might be the most complex, but obviously yeah. my favorite has got to be Holly Martin's because he's such a classic, well-intentioned, bumbling American in a lot of ways. But Pinky Brown is just a riveting character and I think one of Graham Greene's finest creations. Yeah, I, I, I've totally avoided the remake of this. It was remade by Rowan Joff, the, 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 the son of Roland Joff. Gotcha. Um, and and he, he updated it to the, the whole Mods and Rockers thing and i was like oh why don't you just remake quadrophenia instead yeah, of the, yeah. you know do a change in brighton rock i think he wanted to remake quadrophenia but the best he got to it but i've avoided that because uh, yeah i don't want i don't wish to see it you know so i i, I couldn't tell you what it, what it's like I mean, like remake. a young tim roth or a young gary oldman could have played pinky like you, yes. you need that kind of savagery for the for the part yeah. Absolutely, yeah, no, absolutely. Ray Winston, you know, scum or something. It's this, it's almost a, a very similar type character, you know. But um, yeah, so it's 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 definitely if you want to get, get a really good Graham Greene uh, film adaptation, Brighton Rock is is definitely yeah. I, I mean, top five, maybe top three, you know. Yeah, it's, I was blown away by it, and I was, because I was reading the book at the time, I saved it pretty much until the last minute because it's like I got to finish the book before I see it because this is my one chance to actually not be a total charlatan when it comes to doing an episode. It's like, you know, doing a podcast about Graham Greene when you haven't even, I mean, when you haven't finished a book yet until like, you know, I, I think I finished uh, Brighton Rock around like four or five in the afternoon yesterday, but I was like, I got to at least have one book under my belt so that I'm not completely full of shit as I do this episode. But I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad I, with the, uh, the choice that I went with just because the movie obviously is so great as well. Yeah, I I watched the film last night too, you know. But but like me, look, I've read about maybe ten, twelve Graham Greene books, and film wise, I've probably seen about fifteen or so films, you know. But um, so I mean, I I, I, I consider myself well versed, but I mean, I really don't know. Like, there's, there's so much, there's so much there, you know. Um, it's it, it's a huge. It's like I, I remember I was listening to you talking to um, Bill Scurry about Werner Herzog to, to, to do an episode on Herzog. Yeah, you know? It's like 85 movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a similar proposition with, the, with, with, with Green in the sense that the, there's so much to choose from. I, I, I think essentially I wanted to kind of like really to kind of emphasize some of the, the, the really great directors that had worked with him, you know, as well, so, or worked on his, on his mm. uh, films. Along those lines, let's go ahead and start with the first of the three collaborations between Graham Greene and Carol Reed, The Fallen Idol in 1948, a movie that's been on my to-do list basically since college when I first saw The Third Man, and I don't know why it took me so long to see it, but I'm... It's one of those things where I'm always kind of delighted when I've overlooked something amazing until later on, because then I get to have a great movie going experience, and it's yeah. not the equal of The Third Man, but there are some sequences, two in particular, that are very Third Man-esque. And for anybody out there who likes uh, Ralph Richardson, I mean, oh. ho holy shit. I mean, he's just, he's, he's incredible in this. And they, they weren't going to make the movie without him. Yeah, no, Ralph Richardson, I mean. I first saw him in Dragon Slayer back in the day. Which is great, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so no, no. The ca- I mean, the cast is is great. You know, there's there's also um, the the guy who plays the inspector. He's a he used to be a very famous Irish actor, um, a guy called uh, Dennis O'Dea, and he was like. He'd done like three films with John Ford. He'd done a Hitchcock film. He'd done um, like he done Mogambo, he, uh, The Informer. Um, so the, the whole load, of, whole load of stuff like uh, And then he just kind of disappeared. Like and, and most people in Ireland today wouldn't even know him, you know. But he he's he's a great face. He, he's in it. There's also Jack Hawkins and Bernard yeah. Lee. As soon as I saw Bernard uh, Lee and Jack Hawkins, I was like, fuck yeah, I love yeah. both these guys. And it's very early, like they've just got bit parts, really, you know. But um, yeah, so but but yeah, so this the fallen idol. Um, I think it was Carol Reed and Alexander Corda were sitting down, and Corda was saying, or, or uh, Reed said to Corda, like, why don't we make? And I think he might have had the the power and the glory, or one of these books. And and uh, Corda was like, no, no, no. And he put he put he had a short story. He'd read this short story. Um, the I think it was called the, the Lost Illusion, or no, the Basement Room, the Basement Room, and. Um, so they called up Reed straight away, and they went to they went to me. Or sorry, they called up Graham Greene straight away, and they met him the next day. And uh, Graham Greene was a bit wary; he wasn't sure how it was going to work out. Um, but as I as I was saying to you earlier, he really he loved the, the process of developing this with 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 um, with Carol Reed. You know, they they, they really uh, became friends, and and and. Corda especially became really good friends with 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 Green over this film, you know. Um, so yeah, it's it's, it's fantastic. I, I I saw it when I was a kid. It was one of those films I stuck on for my drunk father, and when he passed out, I, I would have stayed there and watched it because with the child. Did you relate to it because of the childlike perspective? Because people the, don't it, know the story takes place largely from the point of view of a child who's misunderstanding what's going on around him, but his hero. Who's, I mean, I guess he's, um, the son, the child is the son of a very powerful of ambassador, ambassador or diplomat. Yeah. And the, like, essentially, like the butler who works in this, like, vast mansion is always telling him these larger than life tales about, like, you know, fighting armies in Africa and doing all these things. So the child just adores Ralph Richardson. Yeah. And, but as we, but as we, the audience knows, Ralph Richardson's carrying on an affair. His wife is justifiably jealous. They have a really nasty confrontation about it. And as a result of the confrontation, the wife ends up falling to her death. And the child thinks that his hero killed her. And the child's trying to cover up for him. But he keeps kind of making things worse by spreading all these lies and half-truths. And it just becomes this complete and total like insane investigation because the child like, keeps disrupt- disrupting things and everybody's just like like shut up like leave the room the child and the child just keeps interjecting but as a little kid did you relate to kind of the child's plight yeah well and that's probably what made me watch it you know or, or made me stay with it you know you know and it's yeah so you and it would have been very kind of the, 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 I suppose the adult teams would have been above my head as well, what, watching it, you know. But um, no, I liked it, and, and and then I saw it again for the first time about five years ago, and uh, I really I enjoyed it. But it's a bit it's a bit dated, as as opposed to the Third Man, which was made like a year later, isn't dated. You know, hasn't the dated. Third Man would never be dated. I mean, like no. when the Earth is a, a pile of ash and the sun has gone extinguished, if there's a digital copy of the Third Man somewhere out there, it, it'll still be fun to watch. Yeah, absolutely. And and this film is just slightly dated in a, in a way that kind of yeah. I, I mean, I enjoyed it. Like I, I had fond memories of it, but I think watching it again um 
yeah, it's still a great movie, you know. Just as the cast is is is, is fantastic, um, and the child, you know, that they they had to use every trick in the book to get this kid to. Uh, he was a non-actor, yeah, and you know, they, they like the sort of the very first scene with the kid. He, he's looking down at the butler, and the butler's doing his thing, and, and the, the butler's kind of performing, messing, doing, it, and the kid's smiling. But the kid wasn't. They had actually had a, a magician performing for the child to get these the, the right expressions on, on his face. You know, so. yeah, they had to use more than a thousand edits to get yes. the reaction shots that they wanted the child. And so apparently director Carol Reed was working these like brutal 16 hour days because a large part of his day was acting like a lion tamer with this small boy and he got yeah. like laryngitis. But if you read some of the behind the scenes, there's so much shit talking about the child, like Guy Hamilton, who later on would direct some James Bond films. who's the assistant yeah. director on this. And he also worked on third man. What he had some, uh, <laughs> he had this incredible line where he said the boy couldn't act his way out of a paper bag and had the attention span of a demented flea. And it yeah. sounds like after like a couple of months, the child was bored of the movie and the crew yeah. was kind of tired of the child, and it just became this hellacious experience trying to get the performance out of him. <laughs> yeah, but Reed, Reed, I mean, Reed is known for his uh, work with child actors, especially in one of your probably films that you hate the most, Oliver. You know, oh, don't I mean? even talk about it. So, My mother made me watch it so many times as a kid, I, and yeah. uh, that's one of those movies where I've got like it's like when like you taste something gross as a kid, and if you even think about it, it makes you like want to spontaneously vomit. When I think of Oliver, even though it's a huge hit, and Carol <laughs> Reed got this like you know tons yeah. of money for it, it's one of those movies that just makes you like want to projectile vomit if I even hear the word. You know, I I, I actually like Oliver. You know, and and this film is is filmed on the same street where Oliver is. Uh, taken by the rich family to live, you know, it's gotcha. that street where where that when, the when one Nancy is. Yeah. yeah, he wakes up. That's that same curved street, you know, in Grosvenor Square in Belgravia. But um, just a funny thing about Oliver, you know, I I used to work in this hotel in Dublin, the Gresham Hotel, and uh, one one week we had Oliver Reed staying with us, you know. And uh, well, I was I, I worked in the residence bar, so I, ha I had a lot of contact with Oliver Reed. And and when I when I went to kind of when I had a gush at Oliver Reed, it wasn't about like uh, the Brood or uh, you know uh, Hannibal uh, Brooks or any of these other films. It was about him playing Bill Sykes in Oliver. Nice. You know, and, and I don't know what he thought of me. Just like, but but it was funny. But that, and I was like, oh, I loved you because he used to terrify me as as Bill Sykes in this. And it, and I never, I, I I never knew it was Carol Reed doing Oliver till about a year or two ago. You know, gotcha. So, so I and never is there any relationship or blood relation between Oliver Reed and Carol Reed? No, no, I don't think so. No, just um, no, just just the same name. But the strange coincidence that Carol Reed is working with a guy named Oliver Reed in a movie called Oliver. All these like these strange like word wordplay and. Connections sure, yeah. are all just a bizarre coincidence. Yeah, no. When I met Reed, he was up here in Dublin because he was meeting with Ridley Scott because it was they, it was the year before they were about to start shooting the uh, Gladiator. Yeah. And so, so he was he was he was there in the hotel for three days, and he was just on a hoolie. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> yeah, he was not afraid to uh, imbibe from time to time. Another funny anecdote from behind the scenes of making this: uh, the mother of the child, who was there obviously during the shooting. You know, well-intentioned, wanted the child to look good on camera, gave the child a big haircut one weekend, and Carol Reed was just irate because in terms of continuity, <laughs> nothing yeah. would match. And they even tried, like, 
taping like hair, hair pieces hair to the chest. Yeah. yeah. And the, I mean, the, the Carol Reed lost his fucking mind. He's like thousands of pounds. That's what it'll cost. It's the most expensive haircut in the world. <laughs> like he <Yeah. laughs> completely lost his shit. So yeah, when you're working with child actors, you got to roll with a lot of punches. Yeah, yeah, he had a minder with the child to make sure the child didn't put on weight, eating all the uh, the good food at at, at the uh, on on set or whatever. But yeah, the mother appears as the as the mother in the end of the movie. Um, she shows up just briefly, uh, 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 basically at the very end. But yeah, the funny thing about the the kid. So I I don't know. If it, there's no point in not spoiling it for people, you know. But at the end, he his lies. He 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 realizes he has to tell the truth, and he he nearly gets the guy banged up again you know what i mean yeah because he, he's like no that was me that was me you have to you knock yeah, over I mean, this plant the last like half hour of the movie you're just like shut up <laughs> stop talking like just like, please leave and everybody keeps trying to guide him out and i'm in that this was made in the 40s with a bunch of brits i'm surprised somebody didn't just smack the shit out of him at one, <laughs> at one point. yeah yeah but but yeah i mean the I don't know. It's 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 a good movie. It's definitely it's it's definitely worth seeing. It's fantastic uh, acting, like Ralph Richardson. It's it's brilliant. He's brilliant yeah. in it. I'm, I'm... And the two sequences I was talking about with the third man photography. There's a hide and seek sequence with all those Dutch angles that people like from uh, the yeah. third man. And when the child runs out into the streets uh, after the the woman That's falls great. to her death, yeah. it looks straight out of third man. With all the scenes in Vienna with Joseph Cotton running through the streets at night. So. That you can see Carol Reed starting to develop that that language of the visual language of like you know rain soaked cobblestone streets at night with all that beautiful lighting and so yeah you can see the masterpiece um, percolating on the horizon. Yeah, I mean for for this film Reed worked with um, a French a French director of photography I think his name George George Perinal. And they argued continuously throughout the shoot because Reed was had these really outrageous type of shots that he wanted to do, and the guy was like, "It's not possible," but he, he kind of he tried it anyway, and they got some great stuff, you know, like the, the, the especially with the kid being when he's running through London in the in the night after after the incident happens, you know. But um, yeah, no, it's it's, it's um. It's great, you yeah, know. I, I really enjoyed it, and I really did like, um, you know, all, all of the interaction with the uh, with the cops and stuff. This for this for me getting to see this Irish actor, you know, Dennis O'Dea was was pretty cool. But yeah, a thousand cuts, which is a lot, isn't it? Yeah, you know? <laughs> now, it's enough to make you realize that if you want to make a movie with the child actor, you yeah. gotta really love the story you're telling because you're gonna be put through the fucking meat grinder or the wood chipper <laughs> before you get yeah. to the final product. <laughs> What fools we are talking to each other this way, as though I'd do anything to you. Or you to me. You're just a little mixed up about things in general. Nobody thinks in terms of human beings. Governments don't. Why should we? They talk about the people and the proletariat. I talk about the suckers and the mugs. It's the same thing. They have their five-year plans. <laughs> so have I. You used to believe in God. Well, I still do believe in God, only. I believe in God and mercy and all that, but the dead are happier dead. They don't miss much here, poor devils. What do you believe in? Oh, if you ever get Anna out of this mess, be kind to her. You'll find she's worth it. I wish I'd asked you to bring me some of these tablets from home. Holly, I'd like to cut you in, old man. Nobody left in Vienna I can really trust, and we've always done everything together. When you make up your mind, send me a message. I'll meet you any place, any time. And when we do meet, old man, it's you I want to see. Not the police. Remember that, won't you? 
<laughs> Don't be so gloomy. After all, it's not that awful. But what the fellow said, in Italy for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. I guess uh, if you're going to discuss this movie, it reminds me of uh, that great line where Trevor Harris says, and poor Mr. Martin's a large whiskey. <laughs> but it's, it's still kind of like relatively the start of my day, and I still got a lot of work to do if there's recordings. So sadly, I would not be drinking a large whiskey for this conversation, I, but, I, but I, I wish to. I, I shall do it for you, you know. Very well, nice. Not whiskey, but yes. Excellent. Yeah, well, as I mentioned several times so far this episode, Third Man's one of my all-time favorite movies. I first saw it my first year in college, and while I wasn't necessarily like a giant film buff yet, I mean, I was so stubborn about watching old movies. Sometimes I would like deliberately close my eyes and try to fall asleep. But this was the beginning of my love affair. And over the course of college, I watched this movie countless times. Totally fell in love with it. And I've watched it countless times since. And I imagine until they shovel the dirt onto my coffin, I will watch it <laughs> countless times more. I love everything about it. Writing, music, acting, location, topic. It's one of those perfect movies. And sometimes yeah. I'll say Wild Bunch is my favorite movie. Sometimes I'll say... A bunch of different things are my favorite movie, but Third Man is always in that conversation. But uh, let me smack the ball over to you. How do you want to begin the conversation? Uh, I guess maybe the easiest place to start is how did Graham Greene come to write this extraordinary screenplay? Yeah, well, just before I get to that, when I made the pitch to you, you, you kind of wrote back to me because the third man wasn't on the list because my idea was, because I, I, I knew you were a big fan because I've heard you mention in the third man. So I just kind of assumed you must have done a podcast of it a year or two ago, whatever, you know. And so and so you were like, I don't know what you're talking about, but whatever we do in third man has got to be on the fucking list. You know? <laughs> so and, and I was delighted because, I mean, for me, it is also it's probably one of my favorite films. I don't know which one it is, but it. I, I've, I couldn't tell you how many times I've seen it, and it's one of those things. If I if I can't think of what to watch, like I've got like over three thousand DVDs in there. If I can't think of what to watch, some I I just stick on to Third Man, and from the the get go, I'm in there. You know what I mean? I'm like uh, straight in there. So yes, um, the Third Man. So it it's actually Graham Greene's only original screenplay. All the other screenplays he worked on were adapted screenplays or working on other screenplays by different adapting other people's work or adapting his own work but this one there was no there was no book the third man it, it was it ba it was based on a, on an idea um i have it i have it here so at, at some point um green had had uh, just written down a kind of a kernel of an idea and he'd written down I had paid my last farewell to Harry a week ago when his coffin was lowered into the frozen February ground so that it was with incredulously that I saw him pass by without a sign of recognition among the, the host of strangers in the strand. And he had this written down on an envelope and it was just kind of a, a journey. So as soon as the third idol was fit or the, 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 the fallen idol was finished um Corda wrote to him straight away or rang him up straight away and said, what else are we going to do, you know? And um, so they had dinner the next day and Green brought this uh, along, this scrap of paper and uh, Corda loved it. Obviously, he didn't care. He wanted to make whatever, but he wanted to make a film set in Vienna. And uh, Corda didn't, so because so, Green had, had thought about it as being an English film and an English idea. And uh, Corda was like, he'd, be, he'd been... 
he loved Vienna pre-war and he, he he knew it had been like destroyed more than, or, or heavily bombarded during the second world war so he wanted to make a film there so so green went over on his own to uh to vienna to to write the script or to do his research basically so he went over like pretty much pretty much um i think I'm, I'm not sure what year it was i think it was like 48 i think or 47 and um so Green, Green went over and he, and he was met by a, a, a woman who worked for Corda and she brought and he just wanted to go to all the seediest places that he could find, you know, and she couldn't understand how this Catholic could this, this, this like really strong because he wanted to know where church was and where confession was being held. But he also wanted her to take him to the most seediest. And you can imagine, you know, um, post war Austria, you know, women were um going on the game because there was only way to get money to get money to, to to you know they were prostituting themselves or there was loads of strip strip clubs uh, all this kind of stuff and that's where green wanted to go but he wanted to go to the to the worst places where, where the women were past their prime and all this sort of stuff you know he really kind of like like the whole seedy and seediness of it and uh, so he went back to england and he started he, he kind of worked out his uh a rough idea and then he traveled back then with carol reed and when they got there it was like six months later and vienna was totally changed you know all, all the rubble had been cleaned up you know that the, the, they're losing the snow, their location yeah. the snow was melted there was no, like when he was there in the dead of winter and he saw like the graveyard where he wanted the, the graveyard scene and all these places with rubble piled outside all of the kind of cafes were all in basements like of burnt out buildings and of course when they arrived back the cafes were all open yeah, it's all festive like yeah like life being restored yeah yeah to- totally so it was like he, he was like i Believe me, this was actually the way it was, you know. But um, so yeah, um, it's just one of these perfect movies, you know, in terms of that all the right things happen in the right way, you know. Even down to one of the most famous things about the film is the music, you know. We it, it, and they they just kind of stumbled on the guy while they were shooting. They went they, they went to a bar one night in some one of these basement places, and uh, Anton Karras was doing his thing on, on the zitar, you know. Uh, on a zither i mean and uh yeah so it's 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 just one of these uh fantastic uh places and, and the whole thing the sewers because while green was there he toured the sewers and uh, because even though it was the city was in four like different uh, sections like the the russian zone the american zone the british zone the french zone the bait the the, the 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 sewers were open all throughout the city so they were they were used for smuggling and all kinds of illicit activity and green green had had access to them so he, he pretty much got the whole movie kind of mapped out and from his and apparently you can still do like a third man tour in vienna like they do it oh, to this it's, day it's, it's something it's, i need to do because i went, I only went to vienna list. once when i was 15 and right. i had no idea what the fuck the third man was at that time so yes. i missed out on that opportunity no I, I, it's it's on my list of things to do believe me for sure so yeah so um and uh, yeah i mean you know when I when I kind of came back to the third man because I'd seen it as a kid and stuff, and then it went, as I'm getting into film and stuff, and I and I really uh, enjoyed it. But um, you know, you you look up interviews with and Orson Welles, you know, he was quite a rascal about this film. Like it, he would like to drop hints that maybe he actually directed it and all these kind of. His relationship with it changed in the fifties. He would always kind of be a little coy or weird or manipulative and talking about to what degree he was involved. And that's what's created all this debate about to what degree he was involved. Yeah. Here's what we know for sure is that he contributed some dialogue. The, the, like, you know, and Graham Greene says some of the best dialogue 
So that's exactly. uh, that's one hundred percent confirmed. Yes. <laughs> but there are all these, and this is I actually got one of the biggest fights I've ever been on Twitter, where somebody who's a, a fellow Wells fanatic, and people who know this podcast know that Wells is my favorite director. However, we should never embellish his achievements. And this person was going completely fucking berserk, talking about how Wells directed this movie and how every creative decision was run by him and all this nonsense. You're just making up this fantasy narrative, none of which is actually supported by any evidence or facts. And yeah. I finally just had to say, look. I hate to block somebody who has such admiration and love for Orson Welles, but it's like, you're a fucking piece of shit, so I'm sorry. Like, I'm moving on. Like, this conversation's re revolting. And then later on in life, Welles would double back and acknowledge that Carol Reed was the, the sole director of this film. And you can even hear him sometimes when they would show clips on talk shows. He would kind of bellow out, oh, a wonderful film directed by Carol Reed, almost as if he was trying to undo some of the damage he had done. But back in the 1950s, there was no Twitter, there's no internet, there's no social media. You could be a little bit more fast and loose with uh, your myth-making. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so there was, there was a lot. I mean, he showed up. He, did, he, he, it, he didn't even show up on time. I think he showed up late. They were waiting for him for ages, and I think a lot of the... They're chasing the, him around Europe, trying to get him to show up, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I think... Um, Carol Reed actually stood in for him, I think, at some point. With the fingers to the grate, that's Carol Reed's fingers. Uh, when Wells is running around the sewer, often has this Guy Hamilton, future director of James Bond movies. But yeah, yeah. Guy Hamilton was um, yeah, a huge part of this. That doorway shot that's so famous of Wells with the cat at his feet, Guy Hamilton negotiated the use of that location. So yeah, Guy Hamilton's uh, all over this movie. All over it, yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny, I, I was reading about um, Graham Greene because at the end of this film, both Graham Greene and Orson Welles, they had big pangs of regret because neither of them managed to get the leg over Alida Valley. You know? Oh, she's and, so well, beautiful. She's such yeah, a goddess. Well, well, Welles was in, interviewed about it later because he, he was seeing some other Italian actors at the time and he, he didn't realize that she was the, the sexiest thing he ever saw in your life. And he, he said, I see her now and she excites me beyond words. The Third Man is the only movie of mine I ever watch on television because I like it so much. And I look at Alida Valley and I say, what was in your mind when you were 10 days in Vienna and you didn't make a move? She drives, <laughs> she drives me mad with lust when I see her in it. You know? so that was well. She, she drives me mad with lust as well. And she drives <laughs> Joseph Cotton mad with lust. I mean, Joseph Cotton, when he says things like, uh, you know, I'm just a hack writer who drinks too much and falls in yeah. love with girls. I mean, he, he sells it, but you believe it because she is such an angel from start to finish. I, I adore the character of Anna Schmidt. Yeah. And, and just get Joseph Cotton as well. I, this is my favorite movie with, with him in it. You know, I, I, he's, I, I like a lot of other films that he's in, but he's just so good in this, yeah, you know, this is and, his movie. Yeah. And, and the repertoire between him and, um, is it, is it, um, it's not, uh, the, the Callahan, the, 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 Callaway, the, the, Callahan. Callaway, I'm Callahan. English, not Irish. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not Irish. You know what I mean? But I, I love that kind of rep, that, that kind of back and forth between them. And, oh, they're brilliant. Know, I mean, Trevor Howard and, and Joseph Cotton, their Trevor chemistry Howard. and the way that um, Trevor Howard will kind of talk shit. And like when, at one point, Joseph Cotton says something about uh, how a parrot bit him. He's like, oh, don't be a bloody fool, Martins. Like he's not, he's not even listening to what he's having to say. But the way they go back and forth and the way they're always, you know, plying him with drinks and, you know, yeah. Joseph Cotton will lose his temper and try to punch him. And like Bernard Lee will have to sock him. He's like, oh, please be careful, sir. Like, I mean, I'm an awful big fan <laughs> of your books. And I mean, just yeah. <laughs> everything, every detail of this movie can ignite a giant conversation. Like I could talk for an hour just about how amazing Bernard Lee's small characters in this. He's like, yeah. Holly Martin's the writer. Like, you know, he just, yeah, nice. he's, yeah. he's just so excited and so enamored 
with this scribbler who drinks too much. He writes pretty routine, generic things, but when he's trying to praise them, like we get some insights into Graham Greene's attitude towards writing entertainment versus writing literary fiction. When you yeah. see how Bernard Lee compliments these entertainments that Holly Martins writes, and in a weird way, Graham Greene is like offering like withering criticism through this kind of naive way that the character Bernard Lee is showering praise on the way he writes. He's like, oh, you can pick them up or put them down anytime. And it's just, I find all that stuff to be so fascinating. And when Bernard Lee gets shot at the end, it's like the one part of the movie that upsets him because you just fall in love with this character from start to finish. And to have him get yeah. shot by Orson Welles at the end, you're like, whoa, like that's, yeah. that's fucking M you're shooting. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, he's great. I mean, it's, it's one of the, uh, yeah, it, he he kind of popped up with again. He was in the fall, the fallen angel or the, the 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 fallen idol as well. Um, yeah, and I think you know all these guys. You know they were all quite hard partiers as well. Bernard Lee, like especially so. You know, and I, I can just imagine like some of the nights that they spent there I mean, while, while they were used to drink hard as well. Sounds like Graham Greene was not afraid of a drink. I mean. This is just a different era. I can only imagine what it must have been like. But I imagine also it's just a lot of really, really hard work. But, but the, I mean, well, the city this, this, is this, just this. magical in film. Every shot just becomes like the most exquisite painting I've ever seen. Like Joseph Cotton, whether he's being pursued by henchmen and like, Tumble, like stumbling through rubble or being pursued by a little boy with a ball and like an angry mob, <laughs> Vienna has never looked more mysterious. Yeah, and, and so and like some of the, the character actors that that that, that, that play the Austrian guys in you know, it, they just have such great faces. They look so good, so so good, you know, so sinister looking as well. No, I, I love it. But I, I was just reading this. Um, this this is a, a quote from Graham Greene dur from during the shoot. He was writing to one of the affairs that he was having, and he was like. A fit of the blues last night was dispelled by hard drinking and a night at Maxim's with an attractive half-Russian, half-German dancer who had yet read books. We talked about Spain, Venice, lesbians, and Oscar Wilde. Sounds like a pure heaven. <laughs> you, you know, so it's like they were just having a... Having a and, and a lot of that seeps into the movie. You know, a lot. That's what I love about it. It's because it's... It is a document, you know. It's a, it's a documentary, in in a way that shows us this uh, post-war Vienna, you know, and a lot of what you see is what what, like when the, what Cotton was there. comes or Holly Martin's comes to the building and he's looking for uh, Harry and he's asking yeah. for him to come down. Just in the background is just this giant pile of rubble, and you see, just, these are just regular people just working away. But it just informs the atmosphere to such an incredible degree. But I just found this one note about the uh, the work schedule. Carol Reed had three separate film units, and so he had a daytime unit, a nighttime unit, and a sewer unit. Reed wanted to direct all three of them, so he was apparently working 20-hour days. So while everybody else might have been having the time of their lives, Carol Reed, I imagine, was earning some gray hairs making this movie. Yeah, and, and so the, although um, Alexander Corder was, was the producer, the American producer was uh, David Selznick, you know? Who's and, at uh, this point becoming almost like a self-parody who was... Almost as much of a handful to deal with as fucking Orson Welles. Yeah, no, so because when, when when the script was finished, before they started shooting, they finished the script, and then Carol Reed and Graham Greene they went to Hollywood because they had to meet um, David Selznick had like um, kind of last say on the script, you know. And um, what funny while they stay why they while they were staying there they were put up in the the the, the former house of um, what's her name. Um, 
they were they were moved they were moved into the luxurious suite once owned by Marion Davis, the, oh, the nice. film star mistress of Hearst. You know, so yeah, that kind of played by to, Amanda Seyfried and Mank, which just came out. Yes, yesterday. exactly. So a, a, a kind of a link back to Citizen Kane in a, in, in a way. But when they got there, David Osel, David Selznick was he he just hated it all everything. He says, "What? What? The guy he goes to he, he goes to Vienna." He's looking for his friend. His friend's out there. Why doesn't he just go home? You know, <laughs> why doesn't he just go home? What? I don't get it. It's he's like it's boogery. It's pure boogery. What's boogery? That's what you learn in those English public schools, you know. <laughs> uh, and then he 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 showed up on set when they were shooting, and he was actually a, a big speed freak. I yeah, mean, I love Dexedrin. Yeah. Dextrine, and he got Carol Reed into Dextrine. Dextrine, you were talking about Carol Reed doing these like 18-hour days, working all, maybe 22-hour yeah, days. both almost. Reed and Selznick were operating on as little of two hours of sleep a day. Yeah, and, and piles and piles of uh, Dextrine or whatever, you know, so it's kind of, it, that's kind of funny too, you know, but um, but yeah, Selznick loved the film once, once because he... he once when, it was when a hit, left, I'm sure he was delighted with it. I mean, this became yeah, a pop culture phenomenon. The score was like what was like a fucking eldest level success and yeah. the composer got to create his own goddamn nightclub called the third men in vienna which he ran oh, for the rest of his life just off the score yeah i mean i i i showed you on twitter there i i have the original shellac 78 from the film you know the with, with the third man with harry lyon team honors and i have the record as well you know but um but when they left him um, when graham green and, and uh carol reed left Selznick to come back and start shooting the film that they, they, he'd given them like 40 pages of notes that they had to change to make and they just ignored them you know they just they put and then when he arrived on set then he was like what, what about my, my, my notes what's what are you doing this for well Selznick but, was notorious for he obviously a very powerful producer you know produced things like Gone with the Wind but he would alienate a lot of filmmakers by trying to direct over their shoulders and at a certain point he probably should have just said screw it and become a director even if he probably would have been a pretty bad director but like on uh, Duel in the Sun which came out like two years prior to this King Vidor basically told him like you, know, you can take this picture and shove it I mean he just he would alienate directors so David Ostelsnick was used to being the big man but I think by the late 40s he his power had waned and he'd probably just become more eccentric, more crazy, more temperamental, more more difficult to deal with. But it is a this beautiful is one of those rare, wonderful, beautiful harmonies of American and British sensibilities because Joseph Cotton, no one's more quintessentially American than the character of Holly Martins. Yeah. How he's often wrong, but never in doubt. And the way he's like talking all this shit to Trevor Howard's like, oh, like you haven't even like bothered to gather the complete evidence. Like he thinks he's such like an amateur, he's an amateur detective who has no idea what he's doing and keeps blundering from one horrible, dangerous scenario to another, which probably my favorite moment that captures his modus operandi. He comes to see the lady late at night and she's like, well, are the police following you? And he's like, I don't know. And just walks in. He has no idea what the fuck he's doing. He writes cheap novelettes for for a living. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so while this was going on, like when they finished shooting, um, and they were about to fly back to England, um, Graham Greene was with Carol Reed, and Carol Reed was on the phone to his wife, and Graham Greene was they were they've been drinking, and he looked down, and he was all wet, and he was bleeding from both his penis and his ass right? nice classy and, and, for, 
basically he was hemorrhaging because he'd been fucking on the batter for like the whole time of the shoot with with the, with whoever was willing to go with yeah, him. Same you know? thing happened to Scorsese like in the early eighties. He was such a cokehead. He'd been partying with Robert Robertson so much. He was bleeding from out of every orifice of his body. And it's just <laughs> yeah, the human body has limits. No matter how much you might like drugs and alcohol, at a certain point your body just says, you know what, we've had, we've had our fill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, yeah, so I don't, I don't know. It's, it seems like the gods were all shining their eyes on this film. Like everything that could go right went right with it, you know. And, and everybody uh, brought their best the, qualities to the to the forefront. I mean, Graham Greene would he probably would have referred condescendingly to this at the time as one of his entertainments. Yeah, which is why I think some people get frustrated with that term because sometimes a mere entertainment but created with exquisite craftsmanship can become one of the all-time great masterpieces of cinema. Yeah, but I mean, like, as, as Graham Greene got older, he kind of, that, that distinction that he had between entertainments and the more serious uh, literature dissolved, you know, and he, he, he eventually accepted that they were all his novels, you know, they, that they were, they were all, and that there wasn't a difference between them. But, um, but what's incredible is that he actually wanted a different ending, and he later on said, one of the very few major disputes between Carol Reed and myself concerned the ending, and he has been proved triumphantly right. He had written this marvelous ending with, uh, with the, the character of, um, oh my God, Anna Schmidt, walking towards the camera for a very long shot as Joseph Cotton, Holly Martins, is waiting for her. She walks right by him. Holly Martins takes the rejection, lights a cigarette, fade to black, movie's over. And it just, the way the music just swells and builds, it's just like, it is the essence of all the joy of watching movies is all captured in this one scene. And Graham Greene wanted to change it. And David O. Selznick sided with Carol Reed and was like, no, this ending is pure magic and luckily Selznick as crazy as he was helped win that battle yeah and there was you know also there was differences between the American version and the British version in terms yeah. of the, the voiceover and, and, and stuff it was, yeah, the it, real it was, version is Carol Reed at the beginning but they had Joseph Cotton doing it in the American yeah exactly and, and what I also love, though, and for fans of this film, is that there's so much more because, the, you know, Orson Welles recorded so many, the, the Harry Lime show, like so many episodes of previously, like there's some set in Dublin, even in Ireland. It's, it's fantastic. And they're all up there available on the Internet to, to, to listen to. So um, they're, they're worth checking out. Um yeah, no, it's, it, it's just a great piece. And, you know, even like Orson Welles, you know, it's it's one of his best roles, you know, in terms of... I always forget that he's in it. I get so absorbed by the movie that when he yeah. shows up, I'm like, oh, I forgot. My favorite Every filmmaker time. ever is one of the stars of this movie, but I get so consumed with the story yeah. and the narrative and all the characters and everything that's going on. And I'm like, oh my God, like the best movie ever, now suddenly two-thirds of the way through, is about to just get blown wide open because yeah. my favorite persona in the history of movies is about to make the greatest entrance in movie history. Yeah. And I just, I just start... Like crying with joy. Yeah. What kind of a spy do you think you are, Satchel Foot? What are you tailing me for? Cat got your tongue? Come on out. Come out, come out, whoever you are. Step out in the light and let's have a look at you. 
Who's your boss? Sagen Sie, was wollt ihr nicht überhaupt ein? Sind Sie deppert? Ja, Sie meine ich, schauen Sie nicht so blöd. Eine Frechheit ist das, mitten in der Nacht so einen Krawall zu machen. Harry! Eine Frechheit ist das, so einen Krawall zu machen. No, it's such, it, 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 and it's such an iconic, iconic image of of that hit him in the doorway just lit up there. You know, it's 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 really good. You know. Well, also, yeah. like, they had so much history together. They did a lot of uh, theater together, and obviously, at this point, they've already got Citizen Kane, Magnificent Ambersons, and Journey into Fear under their belt. They've got so much history, so that when Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles are facing off, it's almost like round two of their epic battle in Citizen Kane when uh, when Joseph Cotton yeah. had to quit the newspaper. And I love how when Orson Welles is walking up to the carousel and he's all smiles and he's, uh, he's uh, greeting his old friend, but yeah. Cotton's hostile. And they kind of circle each other and they're circling each other like prize fighters. They're, they have so much chemistry and so much history. And at the very end, when Joseph Cotton's got a gun and he's pointed at him and the way Orson just kind of nods to him and kind of like invites the, yes. uh, the, the killing the blow. Death. It's just yeah. heartbreaking, and it, it you almost get the sense that like their their relationship is coming full circle. Even though Cotton would appear later on as a, as a coroner in Touch of Evil, and he's uh, he gets interviewed in F for Fake. This wasn't the end of their relationship, but you feel well, like their forties collaborations are drawing to a close with that scene. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, their relationship is central, and, and because we've been kind of the, the groundwork has been laid in Citizen Kane and stuff that, and, and you know of, of the history of where. The, the the theater and what was the theater in New York the Mercury Theater you know that he was he was one of the the, the, the and I I, Mar, I mean correct me if I'm wrong but I think um, Joseph Cotton was one of the last people to speak to Orson Welles when he died I, I think he, that he very well might have been that I don't know but I'm always very proud of Cotton because he's a good old Virginia boy and I was born in Richmond Virginia and most yeah. of my family still lives there so of all the actors to emerge from Virginia in Hollywood history Joseph Cotton is uh, is my fave yeah I I, I think um, Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton, they talked, they used to talk nearly every night or qu quite regularly. And I think they talked the, the night he, Orson Welles died. So, yeah. So but that friendship is also, the friendship between them is also what makes this movie, you know, because it's real. You know, you can, the, 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 the love that the, the, uh, Joseph Cotton's character has for Orson Welles or for um, for Harry Lyme is, uh, it's palpable, you know. You can, well, uh, this movie has so much humor that, Obviously, something like Our Man in Havana is meant to be funny. But yeah. I wouldn't necessarily say humor is Graham Greene's greatest strength, but this movie is funny as it? fucking shit from start to finish. Yeah. I howl like a crazy person while watching it. But it's not like your typical kind of like one-liners. It's funny scenarios like when Joseph Cotton gets thrown into the back of this car, it's careening through the streets of Vienna. You think he's being taken off to be beaten or murdered, and he's like – he's saying all these paranoid <laughs> things from the back seat and then he arrives and it's this fucking it's the literary society yeah it's this obligation <laughs> he's totally forgotten about he has to make a presentation about like yeah. the like the what crisis of faith in the american novel or something <laughs> and it's like it's america's least impressive hour on the world stage as he's kind of stumbling and stuttering his way through all these questions and they're asking like what category do you place james joyce in and all this stuff as somebody who has bullshitted their way through not doing the homework for many assignments i just i find that scene to be just pure delight because it's kind of quintessentially american in its bullshittery 
yeah, and, and the actor, I'm trying to think of his, what his name is now. Um, the 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 guy who the guy who's roped him in to 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 be the the American oh, he's, author. He's like when he says, uh, "I was going to stay with him, but he died Thursday." Goodness, that's awkward. He's like, "That what you say to people after death?" Goodness, that's awkward. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, the character of Crabbin. But yeah, he's everybody's goodness. Even the smallest parts imaginable are astonishing. Like the porter when he's answering questions and he shouldn't be, and his wife's like, "Oh, like telephones for you." And, and not, not, there are no subtitles. Like we see the whole movie through Joseph Cotton's eyes, so nothing gets nice. translated. But the way she's beckoning her husband in because she knows. Her husband's going to get himself killed. And it's something you don't notice on the first time, but on the second time, I'm like, oh my God, like that's such a great little role that she's playing. And it yeah. has all this like extra hidden meaning, like the, the second, third, fourth time around. Yeah, yeah. No, it's fantastic. It's, it's, it's uh, just, we're so lucky to have it, really, you know, as, as, uh, I mean, of this, of the time, yeah, it's just one of the best. And I don't know, did it, did it win too many? Did it win any awards? I think it got the best score, but it's one of those things where the older I get, the more kind of complete and utter disdain I have for awards of any kind. What I care about is like if a writer or a filmmaker or just a film lover loves a movie, I feel like that's the greatest award of all. Like when something gets like beloved many, and this is movies 71 years old now and still readily available, fully restored. It keeps getting restored over and over again. Yeah, And I think this movie is going to, Film history is filled with so many sad stories about movies being butchered beyond recognition or lost. Third yeah. Man is one of those movies that we've got, like pristine, perfect. As it was intended, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's such, a, such a, an amazing privilege to have a movie that's this perfect for our viewing pleasure on, on repeat for, until, the, uh, until the end of time. Yeah, and Carol Reed, he was under a lot of pressure from Selznick to uh, to change the name because Sel Selznick didn't like the third man. He wanted it to be named A Night in Vienna, you know. So it sounds we, we... like like some bad music. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, so 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 Reed stuck to his guns and uh, kept the name. So we're all grateful for that, you know. <laughs> yeah, I um I don't know if I should continue to rant and rave about it because it's one of those things where I could talk about this for the rest of the day. Just so many little things like uh, Callaway's and like deaths at the bottom of everything, Martin's. Leave death to the professionals. And Martin's like, oh, mind if I use that in my next Western? Yeah. It's like a weird thing where I've seen this movie now so many times. I now almost like kind of view the film as like meta commentary on the world of trashy fiction. I love trashy fiction. I read plenty of trashy yeah. fiction, but I enjoy good fiction as well. And you can enjoy this movie on so many different levels but or if you just like broad comedy like when you've got these cops waiting to ambush Harry Lyme at the end and this old guy walks up and like Bob balloons and they're trying to get him to go away and finally Bernard Lee steps out and buys one balloon and, and then steps back into the shadows like up until the bitter end the whole movie just makes me scream with laughter yeah, even just that the beginning of that scene where the shadows, because you, you're kind of expecting Harry Lyme and it's just this strange shadow with the balloons, you know. Yeah, and, and this is where, I mean, of course, there was lots of comparisons to to, to how uh, Wells had done the Citizen Kane in terms of the photography and stuff. And this is where kind of those myths were born of that Wells had more hand, but had hands in many pies and or had, had more to do with the film than he actually did. But, you know, Reed was a guy who was like, uh, you know, he was a fan of Wells as a filmmaker too. So he was would have been heavily influenced as well by whatever was going at the time and willing to try it out. You know? Well, every quote that I've read about Carol Reed's directing style from people like Guy Hamilton, they talk about how he had complete and total command 
over his sets. He wasn't someone like Robert Altman who would kind of get out of the way and just see what was going to happen. Keller Reed knew what the hell he was shooting. And while you could say, oh, well, somebody in 1949, if you're making movies, you've been influenced by Citizen Kane, whether you know it or not, because it's just an influential movie. Sure, you could say perhaps, and maybe in some way he was influenced. They had a very specific idea for what they wanted it to be. And if anything, maybe Orson Welles, in hindsight, probably would have said, hey, shit, I probably should have been more involved instead of, because he was at the beginning of his wandering gypsy phase where he's kind of gallivanting all across Europe, acting in movies, trying to save up enough money to finish his, uh, his adaptation of Othello. And so I don't think Orson Welles had any ulterior motive of trying to seize control or dictate the visual language of this movie because as you see with the evidence, as is evidenced by um, The Fallen Idol the year prior, Carol Reed was already working on this style even in the absence of Wells. And I think that's the greatest bit of evidence. I would love you to say that Orson Wells was the shadow director of Third Man, but he wasn't. Carol Reed directed Third Man, and it doesn't diminish my admiration for Wells in any way, knowing that he just did a really good job acting in it, and he did a really good job writing the line about the cuckoo clock, and that's fine. That's an amazing contribution to an amazing movie. Yeah. Yeah, and of course you got like the... Robert Krasker, who was the DOP, and you know he, he also brought he he brought a full deck to the game as well. You know what I mean? So he had like uh, yeah, it was great. No, it's, yeah, it's, it's just, a murderer's it, row of collaborators. I mean, you got that many talented people in a room, magic can happen. I mean, I'm just going, I'm just glancing at my notes. Every single note that I have written down just makes me want to laugh. Like uh, when uh, Holly Barton says, "Did you ever hear of the Lone Rider of Santa Fe?" And Halloween, Kelly's like, "Can't say that I have." He's like, "Death at Double X Ranch." Uh. Raunch. I mean, it's just so, all that shit. Joseph Cotton, man, I think he's he's obviously got a lot of fans. But I think people sometimes um, overlook well, him as it. one of the great performers of his day. Yeah, no, for sure he is. It's yeah, it's the cream of British actors as well, and you know that that you get. So yeah, it's a uh, it's great. But I really, love, you know, I for years I I thought the the, the guy who played the um the, uh, Bar- Baron Kurtz. This, this the German guy. I always thought he was one of the the, the Nazis in Where Eagles. There, he looks very similar. The guy who go, the guy who they crashed the car and he goes through the windscreen, but it's not him. But for years, I was convinced it was the same guy. <laughs> well, I hate to say this, but perhaps we ought to move on because we still have a few more movies left to get to. And while I could easily do a three-hour episode just about the Third Man, we got two flicks left. So he Graham Greene was obviously very busy in the 50s and has a lot of output but the two films you chose from this decade come from the the latter part <coughs> of the decade and so let's see yeah so I, I, I starts doing a lot of tv and there are a bunch of other like there's the first film adaptation of the the end of the affair the Otto premier film saint joan yeah. but the next movie on our to-do list that you chose is the 1958 joseph l mankiewicz adaptation of the quiet american a movie that Graham Greene was furious with and one that Joseph L. Mankiewicz admits he wasn't even really that focused on it because I think his wife got committed to like an insane asylum or something while he was making it. He had, yeah. he had a lot of personal issues going on in his life. But for people out there who are unfamiliar with the premise of The Quiet American, what is going on with this story? A little bit of backstory to it is that Green, so whatever we were talking about him being suicidal, like he kind of focused that when he became a Catholic he focused that into having a death wish and he, and he would travel to these really crazy places and he, in search of 
debt, you know, oblivion. He, he, he was really like, um, I mean, he was a manic depressive. I suppose these days he'd be bipolar. But um, and uh, but he went to Malaya. He went to Singapore. There was, there was like guerrilla war going on there. And he went there and he couldn't he, he couldn't find any danger, you know. And he, he was like, um, someone mentioned to him that Vietnam was pretty hot at the time the, with the French were kind of slowly losing their their, their uh, possession of Vietnam. So he, he, he went to Vietnam and um, it was a, a love affair for him. He, he went to v- Vietnam many times afterwards you know but he, for for but o- over this period he went there three times and, and he put himself right in the middle of the french war against the viet minh you know and um so a lot of the stuff that made that made it into the book the quiet american that the the, the either fowler or pile go through graham green went through like he he went out with a special forces french special forces team and uh for like four days they went into the jungle, kind of like one of these long range reconnaissance platoons. And he went, he was armed and he kept, he was sick as a dog. He, you know, he was like dry retching and he was just, in, he, he, hard, so he was like, delighted. Like, He's like, yes, exactly. close to you know, death, he, he, sick ex- as a dog, exactly. feeling horrible. I am in, I'm in, I'm in a happy place. And <laughs> I, I, the soldiers, like what they, they said afterwards, like, he kept up with the, they thought they were gonna have to nursemaid this guy but he was like he, he took everything they threw at him you know and uh, whatever it was leeches you know it was all this kind of snakes uh, all kinds of stuff and just the, the jungle and the heat and the thorns and whatever and he was in bits he was he, he was seriously ill when he came out of this but he he managed to get through it but um and he was very the french loved graham green so like the french um loved his novels so he was like treated like a, a like royalty when he went there by the French administration and they gave him full access to whatever he wanted. Um, and he, what he wanted to do was he wanted to see the war. So that they, they agreed that they'd let him go on a bombing mission, but only a, a vertical bombing mission where, where the, the plane was like at uh, 10,000 feet dropping bombs. And he went on this and he didn't like it at all. He's like, cause he's too separated. So he got, he got one of the pilots drunk. The two, the two of them got shit-faced and then he convinced the pilot to take him up shit-faced and they went on a, on a horizontal bombing mission where they were like you know a few hundred feet off the the jungle uh canopy and they were just uh you know t- t- taking it and, and he went on that and you know he so he really put himself I- I- into it for the, for this book but the book itself the story itself it's about this uh, kind of worn out tired British uh, reporter who's living in Viet- who's kind of loves Vietnam. He's also a Catholic, married to a Catholic wife who lives back in England. But he's he has a kind of a his uh, his mistress who's a Vietnamese woman, um, and uh, he, they meet this American guy who. So this is a, for people who don't know the history of Vietnam. So after the Second World War, when the Japanese left Vietnam, the French had owned, had, had been, like it was part of their um, colonies and th- they were determined not to give it up. And uh, they committed a lot of, uh, you know, firepower and, and a lot of French soldiers died in Vietnam. And, and, and of course, it, it ended in this, this famous battle, Den Ben Pu, when the French were just annihilated and they were kind of given two weeks to, to leave. But Green was there during this period. And the Americans were also kind of it, it was at the time when the, the Cold War was beginning to heat up. And the, the, the Americans were um, also they didn't they, they, they knew the French were going to pull out. They knew the French were going to get beaten and uh, they didn't like the, the, the Americans didn't like colonialism. They didn't like communism. And they were looking for this 
third force that, was, that they could that there was all these uh, millions of Vietnamese people who could maybe just look for independence aided by America. So this this is kind of in, in the late fifties, just just before the French finally left, and um, yeah. So so the story is about this American guy who comes in through he, he's part of one of these aid missions, or whatever. But he's re- he's really CIA or OSS or whatever it was at the time, and he's. Uh, in, in in the book, um, the, the the character of Fowler and and the character of the American Pyle, who's probably kind of named after the uh, the, the famous reporter uh, Pyle from the from the American Report from the Second World, but um, he's um, he he's vying for the um, Pyong or Pyong the, uh, the 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 mistress, the Vietnamese mistress of the uh, the British reporter, um, and uh, there's kind of a, this kind of rivalry between them and. Um, and, and then, what Green disliked. So, so it, 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 in the story, um, in, in the book, Green was trying to show the that Americans were interfering in in, in Vietnam and that they were um, arming these kind of uh, crazy warlords who are living out in the jungle. Yeah. And With unintended consequences, like bumbling, stumbling into a conflict that they didn't really fully understand, but yeah. supplying weapons and resources to people who were eventually, you know, committing horrible atrocities. And yeah. so, yeah, it's almost like the way that like Holly Martins is kind of the innocent, humorous, bumbling American stumbling his way through the third man. But here yeah. you've got this character who is stumbling through the Vietnam or the early stages of the Vietnam war, but it really yeah. has no, it has no business being there. And the character at the heart of this played by Michael Redgrave is uh, unimpressed. Yeah. So like, I mean, again, so this, this is another film that's shot on location in, in Vietnam, like as a, as a documentary of the, uh, you know, pre-American involvement in Vietnam, you know, you get to see that it starts on the Chinese New Year and the, the, all these celebrations and stuff like that. Um, and Michael Redgrave, funny enough, both both actors who played this character of Fowler were Michael's, Michael Caine in a later one, but Michael Redgrave is in this and he's, he's great. Audie Murphy plays, it's not, he's not actually named Pyle in this, but it's, um, he, he plays the character Pyle. Audie Murphy wouldn't wouldn't have been my first choice, you know. I think he's um, miscast. Like Audie Murphy is one of the most decorated veterans in the history of uh, of the United States, but he was better in like westerns. Put him in a cowboy hat. Put him on a horse. Let him do his thing. Audie Murphy's gonna delight people. Nine nine times out of a hundred, I think this part is beyond his range, and you yeah. can you can feel it. Like with every line reading. He's got like three or four different ways that he can read a line and he keeps relying upon him. Whereas Michael Redgrave is an incredibly sophisticated actor and they just, they don't make good dance partners. Mm. I just feel like, like Montgomery Clift would have been a good actor. Like not Audie Murphy. Audie Murphy put him in more of like a jingoistic kind of rah-rah pro-American movie. Yeah. And he'll, I mean, the guy was a fucking national hero. So yeah. why would you cast him in this part? And so I think it... It's one of the the great flaws of this 1958 movie that they cast Audie Murphy in this essential role. Well, yeah, I mean, it was supposed to be Lawrence Olivier and Montgomery Clift, and and, and when when Montgomery Clift pulled out, Lawrence Olivier pulled out. And, and, and I mean, that would have been pitch perfect. And just that would have hopefully would have been less distracted by all this uh, personal drama that personal was unfolding stuff, at yeah. the time. Yeah, and and look, so we were talking a bit earlier about Mank being out at the moment, you know, and I and I thought. That was one of the reasons why you know Joseph L. Mankiewicz. You know, people don't don't really 
probably know him too much. I mean, he done Guys and Doll, All About Eve. Yeah, I mean, he's the little brother of Herman Mankiewicz. And so, but everybody, I think a lot of people get the two of them confused more often than not. But Digital Mankiewicz is, yeah, the baby bro of Mank. Yeah. And uh, so it's, anyway, it's, it's got a lot of good qualities, this. There are big flaws. And of course, because it's the whole thing is twi- it, it becomes a kind of um, instead of being anti-American or wasn't anti-American foreign policy, it becomes an anti-communist movie, which was not what Green intended. Yeah, the movie had to be changed to reflect the politics of the time, and so they start making pile less of like a of a bumbling meddler because like in the in the book, it's very clear that innocent civilians are being killed as a result of this third force that he's trying to back to fight the communists. And yeah. we're only a few years away from America getting officially involved in uh, in Vietnam in a more much more overt way, and so the timing was not right at all to make a movie that would adapt the novel in a faithful fashion. Yeah, no, and, and that, that's the that's one of the things about it, really. I mean, I I, I, I read an interview with Audie Murphy where. He said that he wouldn't have done it if it hadn't have been any other. Like if, if if it hadn't been the way it was meant to be in the book, then he wouldn't have done it because he was like you know probably right wing right wing uh, militaristic uh, guy, you know. Yeah, but, I, mean, um, I imagine any sort of propaganda at that time he would have been you know. I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth because I don't know Audie Murphy's personal politics, but something tells me he would have been more at home and something slightly more kind of pro-war propaganda as opposed to something that's taking a very cynical look at American policy at that time yeah i mean like like the remake that they done in 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 2001 um they actually miramax held it back because it was more faithful to the book it it, it came out it it it, 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 i think it test screened on september 10th oh jesus christ and it was due for release the following week and because it was considered anti-american or had anti-American overtones. It was it was shell for a year. You know? Yeah, releasing an anti-American film like the day after nine eleven probably would have been <laughs> poorly timed. Poorly timed, you know. But um, but yeah. So this is it. But it's got like it's got a lot to like about it. I mean, for me, I think um, the photography again. It's Robert Krasker, you know, who's brief encounter, the third man, the heroes of Telemark. Um, so it's, it, it, he's got the he's shooting it. Um, and Mankiewicz. Yeah, I mean, I don't know green hated everything about about it i mean he felt like uh, he, he felt uh, that it was it was a personal attack on him and his book you know and he, he just never he never anytime he had a, was asked about it he would just rant on about how much he hated it well, it's one of the things where like either adapt it or don't adapt it or leave it alone like it's like if it was, when a movie's got a political or a story's got a political philosophy or even something bordering on an agenda like and you change that. It's like, what's the point of making it in the first place when you're trying to adapt the quiet? Just go off and make another movie about Vietnam with a fresh yeah. original story. But there was one little great bit in it that I love, which reminded me of The Third Man, where uh, Michael Redgrave asked for a cigarette and Audie Murphy says, oh, keep the pack. And he's like, I don't need economic aid. I just want a cigarette. I was like, oh, that's like a little callback to the <sighs> keep the pack scene from yeah, uh, The yeah. Third Man. So there's little inside references like that to the rest of um, – Graham Greene's career that I that I did enjoy. Yeah, and, and another thing about Graham Greene when he went to Vietnam, it was the beginning of a lifetime love affair with opium. Wow! So he 
when he went to, when he when he arrived in Vietnam, the first thing he asked to do was to be taken to an opium den. Jesus. And, and he was brought there, and he became very big into his opium. Like most people, and it was kind of like a lot of the uh, expats that were living there at the time. They all went to these opium dens, and they'd do like maybe two or three pipes in in, in a night. Green would go there, and he'd do ten pipes, you know, and he, he would just get mashed up, and it continued for the rest of his life, and and like forever after, he'd have people post him opium back to the UK so he could smoke opium he, 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 because it was a way of, for him to medicate because he was bipolar or, or um, he used alcohol and opium. He's self-medicating, to, yeah. And people to, who are to, depressed to med- or who are bipolar or whatever, self-medicating is pretty common and uh, especially <laughs> like 60, 70 years ago, he had a lot of uh, ailments that probably were misdiagnosed at the time. Yeah, but, but, but this film, when he wrote this book, it immediately put him on the radar of U.S. intelligence. Yep. And from from 1950 onwards, uh, Green was under constant surveillance by by U.S. intelligence, wherever he went, because he because he was he went to a lot of like South American countries, you know, and he, he was he was quite friendly with a lot of these dictators, Ortega, and these. Various he was probably different... regarded as a troublemaker from here. On. Yeah, and um, and and because of, of this, the, the 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 content of the book and the Americans were kind of secretly getting involved in Vietnam and then he was putting it out in the book saying this, this is what's happening you know so it was the beginning of, his, of a lot of trouble for Green and uh, which was to carry on uh, and, and lead to the next film that we talk about but um, yeah so um, I, I don't know it, again it wouldn't be quite. It wouldn't be top five this film but I, I do think um, it's, well it's, it's important to discuss it because we're going to be discussing the good one in the next uh, Graham Greene episode, so it is, creates a perfect compare and contrast between The Quiet American in 58 versus The Quiet American in 2001. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, so, what, I mean, what did you think of yourself in, in terms of... Did, did... I can, you can see kind of the leftovers or the echoes of what it might have been under different circumstances. Kind of like you have to read between the lines, like, oh, yeah, like slightly different actors. And perhaps if it hadn't been made by Hollywood, perhaps if it had been made... By maybe a French director or maybe a British director, it would have been yeah. more honest. But you get the sense that it doesn't quite know what it wants to be. Is it trying to be anti-American or pro-American, or is it like yeah. it's got a bit of an identity crisis? And it seems like Joseph Elmenkowicz was so distracted with his uh, personal problems, he couldn't give the movie a strong, a strong voice of what it's trying to say. So I get the yeah. sense that this movie doesn't have the first clue what it wants to be, what and everybody be. working on it probably has a different agenda. Yeah. No, it's a pity. And, 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 and out of all the films that we were talking about, this was the only one I couldn't find a decent copy of. You know, so I don't know if it's been restored or not, but it, I just couldn't find it anywhere. I I, I did find a copy, but um, I could only watch it on a, on a kind of laptop screen. <laughs> so, yeah, you sent me it, uh, when you sent it. Uh, I guess a link, and I, I just put it on Dropbox, and I was able to watch it. And it, it looked fine. I mean, it wasn't like a, a, a crummy print, but it's obviously not been lovingly and beautifully restored yeah. like the third yeah. man. No, I tried to watch it on a bigger screen and it just looked terrible. It all so just disintegrated, to, yeah. Yeah, so I had to come and watch it on on the monitor, you know. Absolutely. But, um, but yeah, no, I don't know. It's it, it's a it, it's a it's a curiosity anyway. I just like the fact that it's again that it is this kind of. I mean, the Quiet American of of all Green's writing, the Quiet American is closest to reportage that he actually has gotcha. in his. You know, it, it, he, he's telling it like it is. All, all these all these things that Fowler and Pyle go through when they're in the, the when they're trapped on the on the road back to Saigon and they have to stay in this like watchtower like that happened to Green. You know, he was stuck there with some American 
CIA or stro- stroke uh, uh, person who, who they were they were there and they they talked about this whole conversation about this third force and it, it all it all happened to me. So so it's very much a period. It's very much a, a like a historical. Uh, documentary novel in, in, in its way like there, there, there's very few untruths in it you know and it's, it's not fiction it's, it's fiction but it's not fiction you know yeah i um, debated reading that book when i was thinking i'm gonna read one graham green before this episode which one should i read but then i was like you know what? that might be a little heavy that's why i decided to lean more towards something with gangsters and that sort of thing i just like you know i want i want something that's going to be fun so that it'll get me excited to read more of his books which is why i lean toward brighton rock instead of quiet american but one of these days i will take a crack at it this is a top secret item a map locating undercover activities for each little pin here there is one little spy there for example our man in jakarta our man in Vienna, our man in Tokyo, and our man in Moscow. But the most unusual agent of them all was our man in Havana, a very likable chap in a most unlikely situation. Frankly, when they asked me to be their man in Havana, I had no idea of how a spy spies. But I had reasons for being willing to learn, and they were anxious to teach me. That man is one of my instructors a diabolical expert at the cloak and dagger game. My name's Hawthorne. You will come to know me better as 59200. I'm in charge of the Caribbean network. It sounds like the Secret Service. God, someone's coming. Slip into a cabinet. We mustn't be seen together. But we have been seen together. Don't argue, old man. I know the ropes. Alec Guinness, forced by accidents and design to become our man in Havana. You again! Burl Ives, caught up in the make-believe. Maureen O'Hara, as a security secretary, covering for our man in Havana. Ernie Kovacs, alias the Red Vulture. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. I, I meant it for my whiskey. This is the first time I've been shot in the back. I'm glad it was by a woman. Noel Coward, he placed our man in Havana, placed him on the spot. Ralph Richardson, chief of security. Joe Morrow, our man in Havana's problem child. I think we've got the Caribbean network sewn up. Just put me in the picture. I think you'll find the West Indies over here, sir. I always mix up the East and the West Indies. Every time Carol Reed makes a picture, everyone looks forward to something special in screen entertainment. Every time Graham Greene writes a story, everyone expects out-of-the-ordinary excitement and suspense. Now this team, so famous for the third man, has come to Cuba, one of the world's headline danger spots, to film Our Man in Havana. where you end up alone I was under orders like you I 
Well, let's move on to the last movie on our list, Arman and Havana from 1959, which reunites Graham Greene with Carol Reed, which is in, uh, not only still in glorious black and white, but widescreens, big old panoramic view, and it's set in Cuba prior to the revolution, but shot after the revolution. Which and, and like a, just two months after. Yeah, which know? creates an interesting uh, tap dance for the film, <laughs> for the filmmakers having to make, shoot the movie in Havana after the Cuban Revolution, so but I feel like um, this reminded me a little bit of like the Billy Wilder film, like one, two, three. If you enjoy like lighthearted comedy mixed in with politics, Our Man in Havana, and then of course you got this marvelous cast of Alec Guinness and Noel Coward and Burl Ives, Burl Ives and yeah. Maureen O'Hara and Ralph Richardson and Ernie Kovacs. So, but for people, I don't think a lot of people necessarily know what this is. So, give us the pitch. What is Our Man in Havana? So. I- Again, Arman Havana was one of these films. My old man, when he got home drunk, he was like, Arman Havana. You know, and so I, I, that, that's it. He would just say the film and I'd have to go root it out and stick it on. And it was one. So I'd, I'd, I'd seen bits of it from in different parts for a long time. And, I, and eventually I remember seeing it probably about 20 years ago incomplete for the first time. So, But I was aware. So before Star Wars came out, you know, I, I was aware of uh, Alec Guinness in in Arma Nirvana. You know, so it's a, again, like I was saying, when 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 Graham Greene was in MI6, he uh, discovered these uh, agents who were like, or th- these uh, spies who were making up secret agents and charging for them from the various different uh, governments and stuff. So he had this kernel of an idea. So it's 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 about a vacuum salesman. Um, Played by played by Alec Guinness, whose daughter is a Catholic, and he she means everything to him. He's he's been, she, he's been abandoned by his, her mother, his wife, and he, he wants to give her everything that she desires, but he's no money, and he's approached he, he's approached by. Uh, he's like all I want is like a, a nice man who earns two thousand pounds a year with no mistress. Like he's got very like kind of modest goals for uh, for where where she'll end up. Yeah, and uh, he's, he's approached by a British spy to uh, to set up to become a spy and, and to, to set up his his own like uh, network in in Havana, and uh, he he's friends with this guy who's a kind of a, a German exile played by Burl Ives, and Burl Ives says, or this this this, this Who guy just I, came up in the Simon O'Neill episode with the the wind across the Everglades. So there's some strange thing going on where across, two Irishmen would pitch episodes at the same time, starring Burl Ives. Because I, I don't think I'd ever even seen Burl Ives in anything, or maybe one or two things. And it, it was a strange coincidence. I was like, all right, this guy just came up with Simon O'Neill like a couple days ago. But. <laughs> yeah. So and, and this guy, um, he just tells him, oh, just make them up. You know, just make just just. Pretend, you know, and and so Alec Guinness decides to do this, you know, he because his daughter comes home, she's after buying a horse, and uh, and he has to look after the stable, the stabling, and buy all the the equipment. So he starts he starts just setting up and um, making up names of agents, and he just he he he, he, he joins the local uh, club, and he he just sees a character, he says, okay, this, this I'll use him as one of my fake agents, and he sets up a whole network, and then slowly, um. It becomes real, like what his his fantasy world starts becoming real because people are trying to take out his fake spies, and his fake spies are based on real people who he knows. But he's just thought, oh, I just use this guy's name; he sounds good. And yeah, so it's a bit of a it's a it's a comedy, and um, this the this again the the director of photography 
is a guy called Oswald Morris. I mean, this guy deserves a whole episode all by himself. I mean, he's done like the, the Man Who Would Be King, The Hill, Lolita, Guns of Navarone, Moby Dick, Heaven Knows, Mr. Allison. You know, he's, and, and there's a lot of, there's, you know, when you look at this film, there's, there's a lot of Dutch angles, a lot of interesting camera work going on. Which is on. harder to do with the wide, I mean, the widescreen format doesn't allow for Dutch angles. It's quite the same way as like the classic kind of uh, Academy ratio. Yeah. But um, oh no, it's it, it's a great uh, and it also this this film also brings to mind to me. There's a film. Um, did you ever hear? It was it was shot a couple of years later actually in Cuba. It's Soy Cuba. Yeah, I've been meaning I am, to I've been meaning to see that for like 25 years, and I know a lot of people I know on Twitter absolutely adore it. And oh, I know that it got re-released, I think, on VHS in the late 90s by Martin Scorsese. But Martin yeah, Scorsese. Yeah, but I've always heard that it's one of like the quintessential Cuban films. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's it, it's it's shot a couple of years after this, so there's kind of a there's a feel of the two of them, you know. That um, I I am it was it was a Russian propaganda film basically. It was it was designed to exploit the the whole uh, Marxist revolution with Castro having taken over, and it was financed by the Russian government. Um, and they uh, they gave the, the filmmaker um, M- Mikhail. Uh, Kalatozov, Kalatozov. They gave him everything he wanted in terms. Of, they gave him like infrared cameras. They gave him underwater like uh, lenses off nuclear submarines. To, like to the the full resources of the Castro regime. Yeah, and and, and he made this film. So it, it was in two parts. It was to show before the revolution all the seedy American gambling, hookers, dancers, loads of Americans drinking booze and jazz and all this stuff. And then to show after the, the, the revolution with these farmers in their own fields gro- gro- growing sugarcane and all this stuff. And when, when they test screened it in Russia, the people, they they were really loved all the stuff. They're like, the yeah, yeah, can we go back to like that pre-revolution that we were enjoying? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so it got shelved and it was like... A lot of people nope. would talk about how they go over to Havana in the 50s prior to the revolution. And every time you came back, everybody had to uh, get shot to penicillin. And yeah, apparently it was uh, <laughs> quite a wild because, time when you went over there. Yeah. So so if anybody, if you get a chance, look, look out for Soy Cuba or I Am Cuba. It's, it's and, and it's got like this amazing tracking shot in it where this this camera moves up up like this building the side of a building like 10 stories up into an apartment out the other side down again the other side and then into the into the swimming pool in all in one shot you know it's amazing there's, there's some amazing cinematography in it so it's well worth checking out but but getting back to our man nirvana it's it, which was shot around the same time um it has that feel of you know it shows um, and Castro agreed to like um, letting them shoot because it, and, and he had, he had kind of like final say on the script and uh, he, he he came on set and all that you know and they they provided as much uh, help as they could. I don't think they were too happy in the end because they didn't show how nasty the Batista government had been. Well, obviously, anytime you start partnering with a government making a film, they're going to want as much propaganda for their agenda as humanly possible that obviously would have totally destroyed the movie and i know that initially graham green did actually have some positive feelings about the uh, the revolution but then he kind of modified them somewhat over time where he said looking back he said i admire castro for his courage and his efficiency but i question his authoritarianism so he says all successful revolutions however idealistic probably betrayed themselves in time so that's how he came to view uh castro i guess a, a few years later yeah, I mean, I, I think Green even like smuggled stuff in for like he he actually helped Castro's uh, rebels, you know, yeah, be, be, 
it is because here's a funny thing. So Arman Nirvana wouldn't have happened except for the American government. And I'll take you back how. So Graham Greene. So right around just after just after he had finished his time in Vietnam and he had written um, he had written The Quiet American um, he went back to America and he, he was leaving from Vietnam to go to America and he, he was quite friendly with the American ambassador and the American ambassador had given him a year-long visa in his passport and then the American ambassador was called up by the by the American uh, intelligence community and said no no he's he, he's blacklisted because this was around the time the McCallum Act and, and uh, McCarthyism, and so the the American ambassador went to Green's hotel to, to say see you, goodbye. Can I just check your passport again? And Graham Green handed it to him, and he took out whipped out of his pocket a stamp and cancelled the visa for a year. Oh shit! And Graham Green fucking went ballistic, and he would only issue him a four week visa, so he wasn't. So Graham Green was basically personal non grata in America from this point on. So he went to America, and uh, while he was while he was in America at this time, um, the McCarthy thing was in full swing, and, and Green had pers- had uh, on purpose come out with the fact that he had joined the Communist Party in his early twenties for six weeks as a joke, you know. And so when he when, when he he was. Um, in America, they came. They they they, they didn't want to, him to be there for more than four weeks, and he was trying to do, produce a play, and he was trying to do some work there, and he couldn't do it. So he was flying back to. Um, he went down to Haiti for a holiday down in Haiti, and then he was flying back to London via Puerto Rico or New York, and he was stopped in Puerto Rico, and he was arrested, and uh, you. They wouldn't let him into America, you know, because because when he arrived at Puerto Rico, he had to fill in a form and he was asked the question, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? He's like, yes, I have been a member of the Communist Party. So they wouldn't let him fly on. And uh, he was he was being they deported him from Puerto Rico and they were deported him back to Haiti. And the pilot of the plane it was only a small plane. He felt sorry for Green, and they did kind of become friendly on the previous flight. And, and he, instead of flying him back to Haiti, he flew him to Cuba. You know, and so that's where that, that that's where he he got this thing for Cuba because Green became very outspoken against the whole um, McCarthyism thing, especially because he was friends with Charlie Chaplin, and Charlie Chaplin had just left. In fact, Charlie Chaplin was on the on the Queen Elizabeth sailing back to UK two days out from New York, and he was he was wired on to, on the. Uh, on, on board a ship that if when he was returning to America that he was going to be detained um, for questioning and he never went back you know and so Graham Greene wrote an open letter in the paper so this this was all playing into this whole kind of feeling so but but anyway because he got deported from uh, by the Americans from uh, Puerto Rico he ended up inadvertently going to Cuba which started his next kind of passion project you know yeah and it seemed like this passion project it wasn't even necessarily that political. He wanted to lampoon and satire the Secret Service community Secret Service. and the way yeah. they operate. But of course, as soon as you start talking about talking about anything regarding politics, people are going to get their, their 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 guard up and freak out. But I think if you just watch the movie as a as a as a satire of the Secret Service community, it is pretty damn funny watching how Alec Guinness, who's been drawing all these elaborate kind of like sci-fi vacuum cleaners, how everybody <laughs> interprets them as like these exotic weaponry and that sort of thing. And Maureen O'Hara is still just so beautiful and so incredible. I, I'm a massive Maureen O'Hara, just fanatic, and she's marvelous in this movie. Yeah. 
I think it's got a lot of great ingredients. And the fact that the way it ends, when uh, basically he gets deported, sent back to Britain, and he thinks he'd be locked up for the rest of his life. But of course, the Secret Service community doesn't want to be embarrassed. So rather than you know punish him for fooling everybody, they promote him and say, no, you're, we're, we're going to have you teach classes to like future agents <laughs> to like set up additional networks the same way you did. And so it all it's a very lighthearted movie. Perhaps it could have been funnier in the hands of someone like Billy Wilder or Alfred Hitchcock, because I don't think Carol Reed is a great comedic director. However, sure. Alec Guinness and Noel Coward are so goddamn good, and Ralph Richardson's so good. They, yeah. The cast absolutely shines. Yeah, and it, that, that ending is actually, again, ta- taken from Graham Greene's time in MI6, because one of, the, one of his um, co-workers in MI6 is a famous British historian, called you trevor roper who's written like all these volumes on the second world war but he was also brought back to mi6 in shame and he was expecting to be uh fired or whatever or thrown to the and they just made him work in uh in training (laughs) you know so it was the exact same what 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 uh, green used for the for the ending but um no i love I, like ernie kovacs uh, as the the uh, cap the captain sagira and oh and they're playing chess i love they're playing checkers with the, uh, with the, with the booze. yeah with the uh with the, with the bourbon and the uh the scotch i think that must be the first ever drinking game you know that oh it was be- great i was like oh <laughs> god damn well how can you remember which pieces are which but uh yeah, yeah. So i found this great quote about graham by graham green about our man in havana novel and he says alas the book did me little good with the new rulers in havana and poking fun at the british secret service i'd minimized the terror of cuban dictator of fulgencio batista's rule i had not wanted too black a background for a lighthearted comedy but those who suffered during the years of dictatorship could hardly be expected to appreciate that my real subject was the absurdity of the british agent and not the justice of a revolution yeah yeah but no i i mean yeah i know i know carol uh, reed probably isn't wasn't the best director and as you said like there's i mean people wanted you know or said hitchcock would have made a better version or whatever but it is the actors that carry it off or imagine some weirdo like richard lester or someone like that who's kind of like a madcap kind of like mischievous kind of filmmaker had gotten on i just think carol reed he's so good at what he does but what he does it's not necessarily lighthearted comedy, even if I will concede that The Third Man makes me laugh harder than almost any other movie I can think of. But it's just, uh, it's a strange thing where it's, it's not, The Third Man was not written as like a lighthearted romp. It's funny because of just the joy you feel while you're watching it. It's a different kind of laughter. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what did you? So you hadn't seen this film before, then? I'd no? never seen it before. No, yeah, it's been I on must... my list for a long time. I mean, any movie by Carol Reed is always going to be on my list. So, even though I've got my emotional scar tissue from being force-fed Oliver on repeat as a kid, I just overlook Oliver and focus on the rest of his career. My mother has certain musicals that she liked from when she was a little girl, anything from the late fifties, early sixties. And if I was anywhere within reach, she would like grab me and make me watch these fucking movies. And I'd be like, ah! I mean, just never make. You can, I think it's good to expose kids to things, but don't shove it down their fucking throat. Because if, like, if you sh- even if you <laughs> shove your favorite movie of all time down the throat, they're gonna turn against it. So, yeah, she just. I, I've learned my lesson. I have a lot of nieces and nephews. I never shove anything down their throat. I try to expose them to things, but otherwise, I just let them do their thing. 
so so what you're saying is that that whole idea I had of pitching you an episode on musicals is out the window, is it? <laughs> well, I will. I occasionally dip my toes in the world of musicals. Like if you're talking like films about like Vincent Minnelli or these directors who are, or Stanley Don and like these directors who are really good. I, I defer to musicals with people that have great athleticism, like, yeah. like, like the Nicholas brothers or something like that. Like then I can get into it. But when people just walk into a room and burst into singing, that is not my go-to. But when you're talking about the best versions of that ever, then I can uh, make allowances. Uh, what about uh, Paint Your Wagon? Have, have you? Uh, I've never ever seen actually that? even seen. It. I've seen the opening credits oh. when you got Clint and Lee Marvin singing that god awful fucking song. But um, yeah, I I, I've, I've avoided it deliberately my entire it's life. It's one of my favorite films, man. I, I absolutely love it. I actually had some a little bit of a chat with Bill Scurry on Twitter over this, you know, and uh, I don't know. There's something about the. Uh, that film I, I, I've always loved, I've always loved so I don't know I've got a bit of a soft spot for musicals myself gotcha you know? <laughs> interesting all right but don't worry I'm not going to pitch a musical episode anytime soon <laughs> <laughs> well cool I'm really looking forward to our Graham Green part two to uh, to be continued in 2021 but for the time being if anybody wants to talk to you about his books or his movie adaptations where can people find you online? Just to announce the time to plug any and all things related to Robert O'Mara. Yeah, so I'm I'm on Twitter at Bob Unsound or Dublin at Dublin Dublin Filmmaker. I've two it's it's two Twitter handles there. But uh, yeah, I'm at the moment um, I'm available, you know, for gigs or whatever, you know. I'm looking out of work filmmaker. We'll we'll work for food, you know. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, no. So I look yeah, forward. Hopefully, to, 2021 will bring. And the leave. I mean, I think the winter is going to be awful, but I think that hopefully opportunities will start to emerge in 2021. And obviously, like Ireland, we talked about in our, in our episode about the 30 year history of like the last few decades of uh, Irish cinema. It had emerged as this great hotbed of movie making activity, and just um, yeah, this whole fucking year has just completely wreaked havoc on the movie industry. And well, I think I, the movie I, industry I, will be forever altered as a result. Yeah, I mean, because like I was thinking about like even in a, a year's time or six months' time for indie filmmakers who who usually their their location is the street. You're gonna have people with masks on. Yep. If you're shooting, it changes like, the movie. Yeah, it changes everything. You know, so it'll be very difficult to do, to to shoot something outside in the public and not have people out with masks that's what with, uh, with a hobo with the high kit we just said fuck it it's a movie they set during this crap so we don't have to like avoid it we can just embrace it like i think sure. all movies are just going to have to incorporate covid into their movies because like i think movies that were made before it that have been put on a shelf that way as they start coming out next year they're almost going to feel like movies from another era like oh this is a pre-covid movie they're going to start to feel like otherworldly and old-fashioned but as a result yeah no i wonder how soon You'll see people in in big Hollywood movies with masks on and stuff. I think you'll see it like in TV first and foremost, but it's one of those things where if you try to pretend like it never happened, it's gonna keep people at arm's length. Or like it'll be hard to be as emotionally invested if you don't acknowledge that it happened. It'd be like trying to make a movie after nine eleven and pretend like nine eleven didn't happen. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Well, at any rate, we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. Definitely hunt down some of Graham Greene's books, and if you haven't watched it in a while. Watch Third Man again. The Third Man is just it's it's why podcasts like this exist. It's why people make movies. Third Man is basically at the heart of all the joy we feel while watching movies. The Third Man is always going to be a part of that conversation. I think it's just one of the all-time great 
movie experiences you can have from any era. But um, please, if you like this episode, please remember to leave a rating and review. Every once in a while, somebody goes on iTunes and leaves me a horrendous, just ass-ripping, just like murderous, like uh, <laughs> kind of evil review, and I need to bounce them out with some positive ones <laughs> from time to time. I didn't know people could leave reviews because I, I only, whenever I listen to the podcast, I just listen to one on the website, you know. So I'd, gotcha, yeah. If you can go on iTunes and leave, you can leave a star. You can leave a certain number of stars, and I think we are like we're like four point seven out of five. So in terms of stars, we're fine. But every once in a while, somebody will leave some written comments, like you know, one star oh. review, and talk about what a piece of shit I am. <laughs> the biggest criticism, though, which I agree with, is said. This guy interrupts all of his guests. I can't listen to him. I was like, you know what? That's actually a fair criticism. <laughs> I don't know. No, that's fine. Yeah. You all, you always interrupt at the right moment. Just just as as somebody's just about to draw a blank, you just come in at the right moment. Yeah, so I try. Cool. I try to keep things moving, but I definitely should probably every once in a while just take a breath count to three and then start talking at any rate you can find us on all the usual social media platforms and hunt me down uh at colbrex from a personal profile and my youtube channel geeking with james hancock where if you haven't watched it yet check out hobo with the high kick directed by bill tech written by and starring moose matson but we hope you've enjoyed this episode but more importantly as always onwards and upwards ain't like it used to be but uh it'll do you know how to whistle don't you steve You just put your lips together and blow.